I got an email not long ago from a United States Marine. So I knew this man was no sissy. But he was not writing me as a tough guy. He was writing me as a distraught father. He said, my daughter was the top Christian student in her high school class. In fact, she won several scholarships from Christian organizations to go off to college. And so we sent her off to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to win the campus for Christ. That's what she wanted to do, and it needs to be won for Christ. He said about six weeks into the semester, her freshman year, I got a phone call from her. Her words devastated me. She said, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. I said, don't believe in God anymore? What? He said, I got in my car. I drove four hours from Hickory, North Carolina, all the way to Chapel Hill. I sat down with her, and I got nowhere with her. What do you mean you don't believe in God anymore? She said, well, you know, I've got this New Testament professor who went to an Ivy League school. So, of course, he must know the truth, right? They always teach you the truth at Ivy League schools. And he said, we don't even know who wrote the Gospels. There are errors in the Bible. So, Dad, I'm an atheist now. He said, Frank, is there anything I can do about this? I said, I don't know if there's much you can do about this. I was actually telling the story at one church once, and one father yelled out, I'd bring her home. <laughs> so, yeah, that's not a bad advice, actually. You go off to school, and in six weeks, you chuck everything you believed in for 18 years. Maybe you're not mature enough to go to school. I said, Tom, have you ever gotten her any apologetics training? She said, you know, I wanted to send her off to Summit which is a Christian worldview camp that I teach at, John Stone Street, who you're familiar with, kind of heads out there in Manitou Springs, Colorado. But I never got around to it. Is there anything I can do now? I said, Tom, well, you could ask her a question. In fact, this is the question I ask all unbelievers. In fact, I asked it last night at the University of Texas at Dallas. The question is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I said, Tom, if she hesitates at all, it's not just here, it's also here. She might not want it to be true. And in fact, on many college campuses, I'll ask that question. And in fact, I was in Michigan just a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, actually, and uh, I asked the question to an atheist during the Q&A who was a little bit belligerent. I said, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And he said, no! I said, no? No, wait, 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 wait. You claim to be an atheist, a beacon of reason. Never mind if atheism's true, reason doesn't exist because we're just molecules in motion. We're not really thinking, we're reacting, but let's leave that aside. You claim to be an atheist, a beacon of reason, and I ask you if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And you say no. How's that reasonable? It's not. And if you think of the people in your life, and maybe there's some non-Christians in here right now, are you believing what you believe just because... You want to believe it? If you're a Christian, are you just believing Christianity because you want to believe it? Do you, do you know if it's really true? What we're going to do today is summarize a bunch of material that I think if this young lady knew before she went off to college, she might not have walked away. Although, let me caveat that. I say might not walk away. Knowing the truth doesn't guarantee you're not going to walk away from it. It just makes it a lot more difficult. It's easy to leave something you've doubted your whole life, it's much harder to do so if you're beyond, it's sure beyond a reasonable doubt it's true. But anytime you call something, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, things are going to be controversial, right? So it's absolutely critical that you listen closely. Because I don't want you walking out of here today thinking I said something I did not say. Because it's going to be controversial enough. 
It's absolutely critical. You listen closely. If you don't, it can be disastrous. Das hier ist mein Sektor. Das hier ist das wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächters. Das Gerät und das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Hello? This is the German Coast Guard. We are thinking, we're thinking. What are you thinking about? Are you guys ready to think? All right, let's go. The first question I want to ask you is, why are you here? I don't mean why are you here today on this beautiful day. I mean, why are you here on earth? What is the purpose of your life? This is the interactive portion of the program. I mean, is life just a glorified Monopoly game? Get a whole bunch of stuff now because when the game is over, it's all going to go back in the box. Is that what life's about? You just get a whole bunch of stuff and then you die? In fact, one preacher to his congregation put it this way. He said, one day you are going to die. And they're going to put you in your best suit or your best outfit. They're going to put you in a box. They're going to dig a hole. They're going to lower that box into that hole. Then they're going to throw dirt in your face and go back to the church and eat potato salad. Is that it? You just take a dirt nap for all eternity? There is no real meaning to life? Hey, if the atheists are right, if we're just molecules in motion, then there is no purpose to life. You might as well just get a bunch of stuff and just enjoy it as long as you can because once you're dead, you're dead, it's over. You're just going to become worm food. I actually think, however, there is a real meaning to life, and you can find that meaning, that objective meaning, in this ancient collection of documents we've put under one binding we now call the Bible. Now, when you say this in a college campus where I normally am, people look at you like you're nuts. Are you kidding me? How could you believe this book is true? It's got miracles in it. It was written down by religious people well after the events who embellished it. It can't be true. Actually, I think it is true. And there's only four questions you need to answer in the affirmative to say this book is true. Only four. If, in other words, if you answer yes to these four questions, you can say beyond any reasonable doubt that Christianity is true. Beyond all doubt, no. I could be wrong. I'm certainly not an omniscient being. I could be wrong. My kids tell me I'm not omniscient all the time. I could be wrong about this, but I think if you answer yes to these questions, you can be sure beyond a reasonable doubt Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. Now, that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? That is actually from our TV show, which is on every Wednesday night at 9 and 1. Here it'd be 8 and midnight, Central Time. And also, it's on tonight at 9 p.m. Uh, Central Time. It's on DirecTV Channel 378. How many people here have DirecTV? Can I see your hands, please? DirecTV. Okay, like 14 of us. Why not the rest of us? Come on, friends. Don't let friends watch cable. If you want to get, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, you've got to get DirecTV. Actually, that's not true. If you go to our website, crossexamined.org, uh, you can watch it live on the Internet. If you're on your computer at that time, it's streamed, in other words. 
Uh, if you're not on the computer at that time, you can get the DVDs at our website. We're also on radio every Saturday mornings. Here it would be 9 a.m. I think it's 90.5 in the Dallas area, but it's podcasted. You can listen to it anytime you want. This morning I had an interview with an amazing uh, theologian, uh, philosopher actually, from uh, Pasadena City College. His name is Ed Fazer, F-E-S-E-R, and has written a great book called The Last Superstition, A Case Against the New Atheism. Anyway, we talked about some amazing evidence for the existence of God, actually arguments for the existence of God this morning. You may want to listen to that. I learned a lot just interviewing the guy, so uh, check it out, uh, that podcast this morning. All right, now why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Well, obviously, if there is no truth, the Bible can't be true. You know, if it's just true for you but not for me or all truth is relative, you've heard these claims. You know, the relativistic claims. If they're, if they're really right about that, then obviously the Bible can't be true. Of course, if there is no truth, then any book written by an atheist can't be true either, like The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Look, if there's no truth, Dawkins isn't right. So there's got to be a problem with the claim there is no truth. We'll get to it. Second question is, does God exist? You can't have a word from God if there's no God. If there's no God, throw the Bible away and every other book that talks about God. I hope to show you this afternoon that there really is good evidence that a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator exists. We're going to look at that evidence today. Third question is, are miracles possible? Obviously, the Bible can't be true if miracles are not possible. I hope to show you today that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. We'll look at that evidence here in just about 20 minutes. Finally, we can then look at key question number four, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer. If truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, or miracles are not possible. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if we have an accurate, historically reliable account of miracles occurring in the first century to a man named Jesus and his apostles in the 27 handwritten Greek manuscripts we now call the New Testament. Do those documents tell us the truth, or were they written down by religious people much later than the events occurred were they embellished? Are they really telling us myths? We're going to look at that today. Now, some of you are looking at that and going, well, what about the Old Testament? Do you believe the Old Testament's true? If the New Testament's true, or the New Testament's just merely historically reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. Why? Who's in the New Testament that can authenticate the Old Testament? Jesus. If Jesus really is God, as the New Testament documents claim he is, then whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God, so if the New Testament's reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in. Okay. Now, there's a lot more argumentation in the book. This is based on our book, or it's consistent with our book. The book actually goes into 12 points that shows Christianity is true, but these are the central four. All right. Now, as Todd said... <laughs> In the amount of time we have here, there's no way I can summarize a 448-page book in any great detail. Actually, I probably could, could because I'm originally from New Jersey, okay? You see, I speak at 150 words a minute with gusta 350, all right? So I'll go as fast as I can. If you can't keep up, the book is available on the book table, as well as a seven-part or a 12-hour, uh, I should say 12-part, seven-hour DVD set. There's even a curriculum that you can get on our website that goes through all this material in great detail. And uh, by the way, all the proceeds from the sale of the books, the DVDs, the curriculum will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? (laughs) Just so you know, I got three sons, so I need some help. In fact, two of them have already been through college. Uh, They all went to the University of South Carolina. The third one is still there. Uh, They're all Gamecocks, even though we live in North Carolina. The first two wanted to go in the military. I was in the Navy. And as you know, Navy stands for never again volunteer yourself. So... 
uh, they wanted to get into aviation. And I said, look, if you want to fly, you want to fight, go Navy. If you want a nice life, go Air Force. So they went through Air Force ROTC. The oldest one is an intelligence officer out in Las Vegas. He's working with the guys that fly the drones. Do you know that all the drones that are flown in the war zones are flown from Las Vegas? And you thought there was no real-world application for Xbox. There is. The second son is in flight school right now in Del Rio, Texas, which is what, only about 57 hours from here? I mean, Texas is huge, right? It's, it's a ways. Uh, and he's supposed to get his wings in, in, April, I mean, in August. It's April now. And uh, so we have the privilege of going to Del Rio in August. And then um, the third son is not an Air Force ROTC, but he's an engineer at uh, University of South Carolina. So for about the past two and a half years, my wife and I have been empty nesters. Took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. Yeah, that's how long it took to change the locks. <laughs> Do we have any empty nesters in here? Woo! You notice how clean the house stays when they're gone? It's amazing. Actually, we love our kids. We love it when they come home, but it's, it's, a, it's a cyclone when they're home. Anyway, there's a lot more information on our website, crossexamine.org. And, oh, by the way, if I time this just right, we'll have absolutely no time for your questions. Now, we're going to have time for questions. I'll try and save some time at the end for questions, but we're going to go through these four points, and again, we're going to abbreviate them. There's no way I can go through them uh, completely. So we're going to start here at the question of truth. You guys ready to go? All right. Now, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said... No, 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 no. He didn't say it that way. Come on, do it right. Colonel, I want the truth. That's much better, right? Well, there's a lot of people in our culture today that can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth, I got my truth, there is no truth, all truth is relative. We'll get to that in a minute. But let's define what we mean by truth. Easy definition of truth. Truth is telling it like it is. If I say, here we are at Watermark Church, that would be telling it like it is. If I say, here we are at the University of Texas at Dallas, where I was last night, that wouldn't be telling it like it is. Or we might say, truth is what corresponds to reality or what corresponds to its referent. When referring to this book, I say this is a black Bible, that would be true. If I say it's a white Quran, that wouldn't be true. You say, Frank, why are you even stating this? This is so obvious. Because our first duty in today's culture is to state the obvious. There's a lot of people out there denying there's truth. In fact, I'm here to say that all truth is absolute truth. Something that is true is true for all persons at all times in all places. There are no relative truths. You say, I can think of a relative truth. Like what? Well, it's a little warm in Dallas compared to what it was a few days ago, right? In fact, you may have felt a little warm today, but I'm sure the people in Alaska, they feel cold. That's relative. No, it's not relative at all. It's absolutely true for all people at all times in all places that when referring to you today, truth is what corresponds to to its referent, you feel warm if in fact you really do. And it's absolutely true for all people at all times in all places that when referring to the people in Alaska right now, they feel cold if in fact they really do. Truth is just truth. Now, when you say things like this, people are going to come back at you with objections. For example, here's an objection you're going to hear. There is no truth. Now, if you don't get anything else out of what we talk about here today, if you get this one concept down, it'll be worth your time. I did not know what I'm about to tell you until I was 33 years old in seminary to show you what a 
what a dimwit I was for 33 years. We're about to apply what is, what is known as the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says opposite ideas cannot be both true at the same time and in the same sense. What would be a contradictory statement? Let me give you one. Suppose I were to stand up here and say, I can't speak a word in English. What would you say? Hey, didn't you just say that in English? Can everybody see that's a self-defeating statement? It doesn't meet its own standard. So you have to apply the claim to itself. So when you look at a claim like this, there is no truth. What question would you ask somebody who says that? Yeah, simply ask the question, hey, is that true? Is it true that there is no truth? Because if it's true that there is no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? You see, that is a self-defeating statement. Now, we call this in the book the roadrunner tactic. You can get the book to figure out why. But you can see in one short, simple question, you look like a super genius. All right? You simply turn the claim on itself. What are some other examples of self-defeating statements? Suppose I were to say, my parents had no kids that lived. That's at least practically self-defeating, right? Or, my brother is an only child. Or, everything I say is a lie. Some of you will get that tomorrow. Or, all generalizations are false. Some of you will never get that one. All right. How about this? You hear this a lot. It's true for you, but not for me. Someone ever says that to you? You need to ask them a question. What should the question be? If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, hey, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. You with me? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It violates itself. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you but not for me, say, sure, I try that uh, with a police officer. Let's suppose you're going a little fast down 635 out here. You're going 90 in a 55. Cop sees you, pulls you over, walks up to your car, knocks on the glass. You put the window down. He says, you were going 90 in a 55. Don't worry. Easy to get out of a ticket. You simply look at him and you go, ha, that's true for you but not for me. And you speed away. Can't give you a ticket if it's not true for you. No, if it's true you were going 90, that's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to you at that time. You know, I, I go to a lot of churches and I'll ask uh, people in the audience, I'll say, do you believe this book is true? And most people will say yes. And then I'll ask them why. You know what answer I get more than any other, unfortunately? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not this book is true? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No, your faith doesn't change a thing about those things. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, that's true for all people at all times and all places. But simply believing it doesn't make it so. You say, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's at least two kinds of faith. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible is true. That's what we're doing here. That's called apologetics. That's giving reasons for why you believe what you believe. But all the belief that in the world won't get you saved, according to Christian theology. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called James, says even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Why? Because they don't trust in Christ to be saved. You see, belief that has to do with the mind. Belief in has to do with the mind and the will. 
And if you don't want God, he won't force himself on you. You can know that he exists, but not trust in him. I often get the question, if, if I don't believe in Jesus, am I going to hell? Well, the answer is yes. Why? Because God won't force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want God now, you're not going to want him in eternity. And by the way, you don't, go to he- you don't go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. You go to hell because you sin. Now, you could have avoided hell by going to Jesus, but you don't go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. You go to hell because you sin. It would be like saying, you died because you didn't go to the doctor. No, you died because you had a disease. You could have prevented death, perhaps, by going to a doctor. But you're not dying because you didn't go to the doctor. You're dying because you have a disease. So there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is intellectual. Belief in is intellectual and volitional. One's a matter of the head solely. Another is a matter of the head and the heart. When I first met my wife about 28 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. (laughs) So there's a difference between belief that and belief in. How about this? You hear this a lot. There's no truth in anything but science. Richard Dawkins gets close to saying this. What would you say to somebody who said this? You just need to turn the claim on itself. Somebody says there's no truth in anything but science. Your response should be, it is false, but why is it false? Because it's self-defeating. You simply ask them, hey, is that a scientific truth? Can you go in the laboratory and prove that? No, that's a philosophical claim. And what's so often forgotten is you can't do science without philosophy. Science is built on philosophy. What is philosophy? Well, part of philosophy is the reasoning process you need in order to interpret the data. You know, no data interprets itself. That's why I wrote an article. It's on our website. It's called Science Doesn't Say Anything Scientists Do. In fact, the argument between the creationists or the intelligent design people and the evolutionists, you know, it's not a debate over evidence. Everyone's looking at the same evidence. You know what it's a debate over? It's a debate over philosophy. It's a debate over what causes will we consider possible before we look at the evidence. And then once we have the evidence, how will we interpret it? Well, you know what the Darwinists do? They philosophically rule out intelligent causes before they look at the evidence. So the only other possible explanation for what they're looking at is a natural cause. Is it any wonder they always come up with a natural cause? They philosophically ruled out intelligence before they've looked at the evidence. Now, maybe they're right. But maybe their conclusion is based upon their philosophical presupposition rather than the evidence. We'll look a little bit more at this a little bit later. How about this? You ought not judge. This is a big one. We know what Jesus said about it, right? Did Jesus tell us not to judge? Careful. First of all, logically, what's the problem with this claim? Yeah, if somebody says you ought not judge, you ought to say, isn't that a judgment? Because it is. Or you might say, then why are you judging me for judging? See, because that's what they're doing. They're judging you. Now, did Jesus say don't judge? No. What did he say? He said, judge not lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? 
No, he's telling us to make a judgment. He's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get the problem out of your life so you can better help your brother. In other words, this is not a command not to judge. It is a command on how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. Get that problem out of your life so you can better help your brother. It would be complete suicide to say, don't make judgments. You've made 100 judgments today. Between right and wrong, good and evil, safe choices from dangerous choices. You'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. In fact, in John 7, 24, Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. Christians make judgments. Everyone in between makes judgments. The only question is, are your judgments true? I will say this, though, about Jesus. He did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were they in his day? The Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? They were the political and religious leaders of Israel. And Jesus went after them. And sometimes he wasn't so nice doing it. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes, he went after the political leaders of Israel. And if you think Jesus was a soft soap guy who never said a bad word about anyone, you need to read Matthew chapter 23. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 23? To the Pharisees, these lawmakers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert. Then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. You know, can we all just get along, boys and girls? No. He was not Mr. Rogers. Can you say kindness, boys and girls? Well, most of the time he was kind, but he certainly didn't walk around saying, this sermon brought to you by the letter E. Jesus was direct and sometimes needed to be direct. And sometimes we need to be direct too. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying we've got to go around being unkind, but I'm simply saying don't buy in to this sissified Jesus because Jesus stood for the truth and we need to stand for the truth, especially the darker the culture gets. The brighter your light will be, the darker the culture gets. And people are looking for direction. In fact, Todd and I had breakfast this morning talking about this. People are looking for a track to run on. They want structure. They don't want people to say, you can do whatever you want. No, they don't. They want people to give them direction. And that's what discipleship's all about. Now, there's many more of these we could talk about, self-defeating statements, like people who say, all truth is relative. You would say, is that a relative truth? Somebody says, there are no absolutes. You would say, yeah, or are you absolutely sure, right? Someone might say, all truth depends on your perspective. And you'll say... Does that truth depend on your perspective? You get the idea here, right? Now, this roadrunner tactic is an easy way for you to be a lie detector. You can detect lies by turning a claim on itself. Now, this kind of reminds me of Homer Simpson. Check this out. Now we're going to run a few tests. This is a simple lie detector. I'll ask you a few yes or no questions, and you just answer truthfully. Do you understand? Yes. Can everybody see that it's a self-defeating statement, ladies and gentlemen? Now, there's just one small problem with truth. As Paul said in Romans 1, we tend to suppress it. Pascal said it this way. 
people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Christians, are you just a Christian because you find Christianity attractive? Because you think one day that you're going to be able to see your loved ones and see Jesus in heaven. That's just an attractive idea. But you couldn't defend why you think Christianity is true. Atheists, are you just an atheist because you like what you perceive to be the moral freedom you have? That you don't need to bow your knee to a creator. You can live the life you want to live without worrying about any moral restraints. I can tell you the elephant in the room in most of the atheists I talk to has nothing to do with evidence. You know what the elephant in the room is? Morality and accountability. They don't want to be accountable to anyone or anything. And they certainly don't want to live in any other way than the way they want to live. That's why many people resist Christianity, because they perceive that they're not going to be in control anymore. Hey, when I was a non-Christian, I was in control. I thought I was. I blew it. I need somebody to help me. I don't know about you. All right, let's move on to this question, does God exist now? We know truth exists. So what we've just, if, if our reasoning is good here, we've just shown that the Bible could be true, right? Because truth exists. We've also shown that perhaps if the Bible's not true, maybe Richard Dawkins is right, okay? Maybe it's true that God doesn't exist, okay? Because truth does exist, we know that. And we've just disproven relativism and postmodernism, right? That all truth is relative or that there is no ultimate truth. We've just disproven that if our reasoning is good. Now we're moving on to the question, is it true that God exists? And whenever we talk about God, we need to define our terms. We're talking here about a theistic God. What's a theistic God? A theistic God is sort of like a painter is to a painting, Michelangelo paints the painting. His attributes are expressed in the painting, but Michelangelo is not the painting. This is a theistic God. God creates the universe and he creates you. His attributes are expressed in the universe and expressed in you, but he is not the universe and he is not you. Now, the worldview that believes God is the creation is called pantheism. I'm God, you're God, we're all God. You know pantheism. Use the false, Luke. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a theistic God who is as attached from his universe as a painter is from a painting. Now, where the analogy breaks down is this. A painter can paint the painting and then die like Michelangelo. That's not a theistic God. Because actually what's going on right now is God didn't just create the universe. God is holding the universe and you together right now. This is called the continuous cause, and this is what we spoke about uh, on the radio this morning. That's why I want you guys to listen to that podcast. This is uh, for those of you who are into theology. Thomas Aquinas talked about this in the 1200s. It's called the first way. Aquinas wasn't interested necessarily in the universe having a beginning, although it did, and that God created the universe. He's saying that even if the universe is eternal, which it isn't, it had a beginning, but even if it's eternal, somebody's holding it together right now. In fact, a better analogy would be this. The universe is, is like a symphony is to, a, to music. Once the symphony stops playing, the music's over. Once God says the world doesn't need to exist anymore, the world's over. God is holding up the universe right now. Now, what is the evidence for this kind of God, a theistic God? Three arguments we're going to go through briefly. The first is the beginning of the universe. This is known as the cosmological argument. Cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world or universe. It said if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. 
And he also, it also, in certain respects, can be the continuous cause as well. But we're just going to look at the beginning. The second argument is the argument from design, known as the teleological argument. Telos is a Greek word meaning design or purpose. If there's design in the universe and design in life, there must be a designer. Now, these two arguments are scientific in nature. You can get evidence for these arguments by either looking into a telescope or uh, looking into a microscope, which we will do. The third argument, however, is not scientific at all. It's more philosophical in nature. Yet it's the argument we've all known since we were very small children. It's the argument from morality known as the moral argument. And it says if there's one thing morally wrong out there, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun, or it's wrong to murder six million Jews in a Holocaust, there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no God, if there is no standard beyond humanity, that's just your opinion against, say, Hitler's opinion. Now, intuitively understand there's something really wrong about murdering Jews or torturing babies. If that's the case, there must be a moral lawgiver, an unchanging moral lawgiver who gives us that standard. That's what we mean by God. We'll get to that later. Let's start with the cosmological argument. We'll start right here in the beginning. And this is the argument that many say points to the big... Now, some of us are going in here, uh, Frank, you know, we're Christians, uh, we don't believe in the Big Bang. You guys don't believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. You see, the evidence for the Big Bang is quite good. You even have atheistic scientists admitting this, like Stephen Hawking, who says almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, Hawking tries to come up with another explanation for where space, time, and matter came into existence. He fails, I think. Another explanation other than God. But even he admits the data show that space, time, and matter had a beginning, an absolute beginning. Another cosmologist by the name of Alexander Vilenkin put it this way. He said, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There's now no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, very interesting, this quote here, two words, proof. Very unusual for scientists to use the word proof. Normally, they say the evidence points to, the evidence suggests. He's saying the evidence is so strong that in his opinion... It constitutes a proof. The other interesting word is the word problem. Why is it a problem that there's a cosmic beginning? Because that gets too close to the G word, God. They don't want to go there. In fact, Einstein himself didn't want to go there. Einstein did something that a third grader wouldn't do in math in order to avoid that the universe had a beginning. I'll mention that to you in just a minute. In fact, let me show you some of the evidence that the universe had a beginning. This is just scientific evidence. It's in an acronym, SURGE, S-U-R-G-E. This is all from chapter three of the book. I can only list the, the arguments here. I don't have time to go through them in any detail, but I'll just list them for you so you can get a flavor for them. The S stands for the second law of thermodynamics, which says the universe is running down. It's running out of energy. You say, how does this show the universe had a beginning? Because if the universe was eternal, we'd be out of energy by now. I mean, you can think of the universe as a dying flashlight. If I were to take a flashlight right here, turn it on, put it on this table, and leave, and come back tomorrow, what would be the strength of the beam coming out of the flashlight tomorrow? It'd be weak if not dead. Why? Because there's only so much juice in those batteries, and the longer you have the, the flashlight on, the less and less energy you have in the flashlight, right? Well, suppose I had turned the flashlight on an infinitely long time ago. Would there be any light coming out of there now? No. Same thing is true with the universe. If the universe was, 
was eternal, we'd be out of energy by now. But we still have energy, so it must have had a beginning. The U stands for the fact that the universe is expanding. Edwin Hubble detected that back in 1929, that basically the galaxies are all moving away, and he deduced if we could go back in time, we'd come back to a point mathematically of nothing. So once there was no space, no matter, no time, then everything leapt into existence. The R in surge stands for the radiation afterglow. What's that? That's literally the remnant heat from the Big Bang explosion. It's been discovered. And this is the smoking gun to the Big Bang. It was discovered by two scientists working at Bell Labs in Homedale, New Jersey. They won Nobel Prizes for this. In 1978, they discovered this in 1965. It's the smoking gun to the Big Bang. The heat is still out there. The G stands for the great galaxy seeds. Again, there's more detail on the book on this, but these are basically very fine temperature variations in the radiation afterglow that allowed the universe, or I should have allowed the galaxies to form in the early universe. If those temperature variations were any different, according to the theory, we wouldn't even be here. Okay, so those were seeds of the galaxies. And the E stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. Einstein knew back in 1916 that space, time, and matter were co-relative, that they came into existence together. But, you know, the great Einstein didn't like it. In fact, he called the result irritating. Why? Because it pointed back to a beginning, which to him meant a beginner. He wanted the universe to be static and eternal. So you know what the great Einstein did in order to avoid that implication? He put a fudge factor into his equations to keep the universe static and eternal. Basically, the great Einstein divided by zero. Now, what are you told in third grade? Never divide by zero. You can go straight to hell for that. (laughs) Well, the great Einstein divided by zero. Mathematicians in the 1920s began looking at his equations going, Al you got a mathematical error in here. Your original equations were correct. And later, after Einstein looked through Hebel's telescope in 1931, he recanted of that error and said the universe did have a beginning. He said, all I'm interested now is to find the mind of God. The rest are details. Now, Einstein was not a Christian. He denied being an atheist. He also denied being a pantheist. So what was he? Maybe like a deist, somebody who believes that God started the universe and then left it. But his theory has been proven accurate to more than five decimal points, that space, time, and matter had a beginning. This led this man, Robert Jastrow, who was an agnostic astronomer and sat in the same chair Edwin Hubble sat in at the Mount Wilson Observatory in Pasadena, uh, Pasadena, California, until he died about five or six years ago at the age of 82. Jastrow was an agnostic. In fact, in 1978, he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And on page one of the book, he says, look, I'm an agnostic on religious matters. In other words, I don't know whether God exists or not. But here's what he said in page 14. The astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential element in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. He then went on in an interview to say that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. You say, wait, why would an agnostic say it's scientifically proven that supernatural forces are at work? Why couldn't nature have created the universe? Why couldn't nature have created the universe? Because there was no nature. Nature is the effect. It can't be the cause. Nature itself was created. Space, time, and matter had a beginning, which means the cause must transcend space, time, and matter. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Now, when you think of a spaceless, timeless, immaterial cause, who do you think of? God. 
That's why Einstein didn't like the fact that there was a beginning. That's where it was leading. Now, it wasn't just Jastrow who said these kind of things. Every one of these gentlemen are Nobel Prize winners in physics. They helped discover the R, the radiation afterglow, and the SURGE acronym, and the G. The first guy, Arno Penzias, helped discover the radiation afterglow. He said, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. His colleague, Robert Wilson, said, certainly there was something that set it all off. I can't think of a better theory of the origin of the universe to match Genesis. This next man, his name is George Smoot. He helped discover the great galaxy seeds. He taught at UCAL berserkly. Here's what he said. There is no doubt that a parallel exists between the Big Bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation from nothing. Now, if the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. The evidence leads us to one of the following two options. Either no one created something out of nothing, which, of course, is the atheistic view, or someone created something out of nothing, which is the theistic view. Now, my only question is, which view is more reasonable, that no one created something out of nothing or that someone created something out of nothing? Survey said? Someone, of course. I was at Texas A&M a couple of years ago, and... An atheist, whoop, whoop, yeah. You, you guys, you're gonna, you guys are going to be embarrassed after I tell you this story now. <laughs> whoop, whoop, yeah. This is, these are the kind of people you have at A&M, you're in trouble. Anyway, this atheist, I said, which view is more reasonable? This atheist said, oh, I think number one is more reasonable. I said, you think number one is more reasonable? I said, let's take a look at number two for a second. Number two says, someone created something out of nothing. Now, that is a miracle, right? But at least you've got someone to do the miracle, Number one is a miracle with no miracle worker. You've got no one doing a miracle. That's absurd. To say that something can pop into existence from nothing and by nothing goes against everything we know about reality. In fact, all of science is based on the principle that everything that comes into existence must have, must have a cause. Notice I didn't say everything has a cause. There has to be an uncaused first cause. But everything that comes into existence must have a cause. I said to the audience that night, I, sh I said, to show you how seriously we take the law of causality in here, there is nobody sitting in this room right now that as you sit here, you are currently worried that a hippopotamus has appeared out of nothing by nothing in your dorm room and is currently defecating on the carpet, right? You don't worry about that. You don't worry that a raging tiger is just going to appear right here in the aisle and devour you. Why? Because you know things don't do that. Things don't pop into existence out of nothing and by nothing. And if the universe can pop into existence by nothing, out of nothing and by nothing, why doesn't everything pop into existence out of nothing and by nothing? Why don't Mercedes-Benzes and MacBook Pros pop in? I mean, it could have saved me a couple hundred grand. Things just, or a couple of grand, if just pop into existence. They don't. Yeah, these things, oh, I think they all, almost are a couple hundred grand sometimes. Anyway, here's a question to ask an atheist. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? This was the question the philosopher Leibniz posed. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? If you ask an atheist that and he says, well, the universe is eternal, you would say, well, in fact, this is the question we got last night at UT Dallas. He said, why can't the universe be eternal? I feel like it could be eternal. The problem is all the evidence shows it isn't. You've only got two possibilities. Either the universe is eternal or something outside the universe is eternal. Either the universe is the uncaused first cause or something outside the universe is the uncaused first cause. All the evidence shows the universe had a beginning. If that's the case, 
then something outside the universe is the uncaused first cause. The universe came into existence out of nothing. Now, what is nothing? Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said, nothing is what rocks dream about. Okay? That's nothing. No space, no matter, no time. Now, we can, during the Q&A, if you want to ask who made God or whatever, we can do that. But we've got to move on now to the design argument, the teleological argument. The universe just didn't explode into being randomly. It turns out it exploded into being with extreme precision. And it's precisely fine-tuned right now. This is sometimes called the anthropic principle, that the fingerprint of the creator is on the universe. The universe is highly fine-tuned. If you were to change any one of a number of factors about the universe, we wouldn't be here. Nothing would be here. In fact, Stephen Hawking even admits this. Here's what he says. He says, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million, a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. You change the expansion rate, that infinitesimal amount, we are not here. Now, notice this is an initial condition of the universe. In other words, you can't come up with some sort of cosmic evolutionary argument here to say, well, maybe it just, you know, over a long period of time formed, formed itself so there could be life here. This is from the very beginning. It's as if somebody put the proper expansion rate into the universe at the beginning. In fact, that's exactly what happened. And the expansion rate, expansion rate right now is highly fine-tuned. Also, the gravitational force, if you were to alter the gravitational force by more than one part in 10 to the 40th, we wouldn't be here. Now, what's 10 to the 40? What's one part in 10 to the 40? That's one part in one with 40 zeros following it. That's extreme precision. You say, I can't get my head around that. Neither can I. Let me give you an illustration, though. Take a tape measure and stretch it across the entire known universe. That's a long way. Set the gravitational force at a particular inch mark on that tape measure. I know gravity is not measured in inches. This just gives you a scale idea in your mind. If you were to move the strength of gravity one inch in either direction, we wouldn't be here. Now, there's only three possibilities or three possible explanations for that value being right there. Physical necessity, it had to be there. No, it doesn't have to be there. It could have been here, could have been here, could have been a thousand miles that way. It could have been a million miles that way. The second possibility is chance. In other words, we don't know. It just happened to get there by accident. I don't have enough faith to believe that. The third possibility is design. Somebody designed it to be right there. That seems the most probable explanation that somebody designed it. Now, it's not just these factors about the universe that are highly fine-tuned. So, it seems, there's a habitability argument even with regard to our solar system. That if our solar system was slightly different, we wouldn't be here. Uh, Where are we in the solar system? There we are, third rock from the sun, right? If we were just a little bit closer to or a little bit further away, we wouldn't be here. A little bit closer to, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We are what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It is not too hot. It is not too cold. It is just right. Although in Dallas here in the summer, no, we're too close. We're certainly too close to the sun, right? Um, The axial tilt, 23 and a half degrees. Change that slightly, we don't exist. Earth rotation, 24 hours. Change that slightly, we don't exist. The amount of oxygen in the atmosphere, it's 21%. If it were 25%, spontaneous fires would break out. If it were 15%, we'd all suffocate. 
The size and distance of the moon is just right for us. In fact, if Jupiter was not in its current orbit, we wouldn't be here. Why? What does Jupiter do for us? Does anyone know? Yeah, Jupiter is a cosmic vacuum cleaner. Its gravitational force is so strong that it attracts most of the meteors and space junk to it. You want to take a close-up look at Jupiter? You know what these purple marks are right here? Those purple marks are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Thank God for Jupiter. (laughs) Because if Jupiter wasn't there, we wouldn't be here. In fact, I saw in the Drudge Report about six months ago, scientists... It said something like, scientists fear large meteor to hit Earth in 2040. Some of you will still be alive then. I am rooting for Jupiter. (laughs) Go, Jupiter, go. Saturn does the same thing, by the way. You want to see the size of Jupiter? Check this out. Saturn, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, Earth. Look at poor Pluto down here. You know, Pluto recently has been demoted as a planet. I don't know about you, but I think it's size discrimination. All right, take a look at this now. You can hardly see Pluto. Take a look at this. That's another star in our galaxy. That's Arcturus. There's the sun. Jupiter is one pixel in size on this scale. Earth is invisible. Pluto forget about it. Take a look at this. You got Arcturus there? Take a look at Arcturus. Now look at this. Where's Arcturus? Right there to the left of the white star Regal. See that? That's Antares, another star in our galaxy. The sun is one pixel in size on this. Jupiter is invisible. Earth, Pluto, forget about them. This is just in our galaxy. In fact, if the earth was the size of a golf ball, this star Betelgeuse... Everybody always laughs at that. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, it's a movie, but it's a star, okay? (laughs) If the earth was the size of a golf ball, Betelgeuse would be five or six Empire State Buildings high. This is just in our galaxy. The heavens are awesome. Another anthropic principle is that the average distance between stars in our galaxy is 30 trillion miles. All that distance is necessary for us to exist here on Earth right now. If the distance were different, gravitational attractions would be, or gravitational orbits and all that would be messed up and we couldn't stay in orbit and we wouldn't be here. Now, 30 trillion miles. How far is 30 trillion miles? Twice our national debt. debt. You're right. And that's, that's a lot. In fact, 30 trillion miles is... Far, it would take you at least two tanks of gas on a Toyota Prius to go 30 trillion miles. That is if the gas pedal doesn't stick. I was at the Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona a number of years ago. If you're ever out in Tucson, you can go out there at night. It's far from the city lights. You can see in a clear night, you can see satellites in orbit. That's how clear it is. And we were out there with a guide once, and the guide said, hey, it's so clear tonight. If we look up at 903... We're going to see the space shuttle in orbit. I said, oh, come on. We're not going to see the space shuttle. It's only 120 feet long. It's 350 miles up. We're not going to see it. Oh, me of little faith. At 9.03, the guide goes, look! 
And we look up in the sky about 70 degrees above the horizon, coming out of the west. There's an object streaking across the sky relative to us about like this. I mean, it is really moving. When it got right about here, it disappeared. I don't know whether Scotty beamed it up or what. But it was screaming across the sky. Actually, probably what happened is, despite the fact that it was night where we were, the space shuttle was so high, the sun was still reflecting off it. And then when it got out of the range of the sun, we couldn't see it anymore. Now, when the space shuttle is in orbit, the space shuttle is traveling at about 18,000 miles an hour. Goes around the Earth once every hour and 15 minutes. Now, 18,000 miles an hour is five miles per second. You got trouble getting to work in the morning? Take the space shuttle. You'll be there. Five miles a second. Think about that. Now, I did a little calculation. I tried to figure out how long would it take us if we could get in the space shuttle and go from our star, the sun, to another star an average distance away, 30 trillion miles in our galaxy. How long would it take us to go 30 trillion miles at five miles a second? How long do you think it would take us? It would take us 201,450 years. That means if you got in the space shuttle at the time of Christ and started traveling from our star, the sun, to another star an average distance away, just in our galaxy, you'd be less than one hundredth of the way there right now. And how many stars are out there? The number of stars that are out there are about the equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth. And to go from one grain of sand to another grain of sand going five miles a second will take you over 200,000 years. And we're going to explore space. No, we're not. (laughs) We are not going anywhere in space. Who'd like to go to the next nearest star? We'll go. Get in, kids. Are we almost there yet, Dad? (laughs) Another 200,000 years. (laughs) Play some more Xbox. (laughs) No. In fact, take a look at this. You see this uh, picture on the left there? This is from the ground. You see that square right there? That's this square from the Hubble Space Telescope. Those are stars, galaxies, planets, whatever. February 1st, 2003, just over 10 years ago, President Bush goes into the East Room in the White House. It's Saturday morning, 9 o'clock in the morning. They turn the TV camera on. Every major network carries his address. Saturday morning, 9.03, why? The president looks in the camera and says, My fellow Americans, this morning our country experienced a great tragedy. Upon re-entry into the atmosphere, the space shuttle Columbia burned up in the skies over Texas. There are no survivors. The Columbia is lost. The president then went on to quote from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25. Why Isaiah chapter 40? Because according to Isaiah, God is speaking. And what does God say? To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. In other words, you want to know what I'm like? Here's a comparison. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these stars and named them one by one? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The president looked back in the camera and said, The same God that created and named all those stars is the same God that created and knows the names of the seven astronauts who perished today. 
while they did not return safely home to us, we can all now pray they've all returned safely home. You want to know who God is? Most Christians have the wrong idea of who God is. We think God is a big angel. God is not a big angel. You want to know who God is? Remove all limits from your mind. That's God. If he's an ounce of any attribute, he's infinite in that attribute. If he's an ounce of love, he's infinite love. Ounce of justice, infinite justice. Ounce of power, infinite power. He is the standard by which everything else is measured. Why is there a second commandment? Thou shalt make no graven image. At least one reason. Because any image you make of an infinite being necessarily limits his majesty. You can't draw a picture of infinity. Everything we know in this world is finite. It's limited. God is infinite, unlimited. He has no limits. That's why the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, God's love to those that fear him exceeds the height of the heavens above the earth. How high are the heavens above the earth? How many stars are out there? Sand grains on all the beaches on all the earth. 200,000 years at five miles a second between those stars. From our perspective, it's infinite, even though the heavens aren't infinite. But from our perspective, it is. That's the point. The closest thing in our perspective to infinity are the heavens. That's why the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's why, by the way, everybody knows there's a God. You've heard, what about those who've never heard? There's no such person. Everybody knows there's a God from creation. Now, not everybody knows about Christ. That's our job. But everybody knows there's a God. Now, just like you can look out into a telescope and see amazing design, you can look into a microscope and see it as well. You see this? This is a one-celled amoeba, something the Darwinists say we all evolved from. You heard of the theory of macroevolution, from the goo to you via the zoo? Okay, this is the goo. In Darwin's day, this was not considered to be any big deal, that maybe non-living chemicals could come together via natural forces, create a one-celled life out of non-living materials, and then natural selection could take over and eventually it would get to us. But in Darwin's day, we did not know what was in a cell. And today we do. By the way, there's an important observation about this cell. Do you notice it doesn't say made by God on it? Neither does it say evolved from the first or created by natural forces without intelligent intervention. It doesn't say that, right? So how do we know how it got here? You have to interpret the data. You have to look at the data and interpret it. That's why science doesn't say anything scientists do. And what kind of worldview do scientists have when they look at something like this? That might determine what they think about the first life. Now, what is really going on in a cell? I can only point out one aspect of it that I think is critically important. And for that, I need to take you to your breakfast table. How many people in here like alphabet cereal? Let's suppose you want a bowl of alphabet cereal, Ed, and uh, you're a teenager. You come downstairs to have a bowl of alphabet cereal, and you see the alphabet cereal, the box is knocked over on the table, and right in the middle of the table, the letters spell, take out the garbage, mom. What are you going to assume? The cat knocked the box over? Earthquake shook the house? 
No, you're going to say that that's intelligent design from an intelligent being mom, right? Or let's say you're walking along the beach one day and you see in the sand, John loves Mary. What do you assume? The waves did that? Crabs came out of the water and made that message? No, you're going to say that's got to be the result of intelligence. So you put your head back and you see in the clouds, drink Coke. What do you assume? Unusual cloud formation? I got it. It's cloud evolution. No. You're going to say there had to be intelligence there because you know that messages only come from minds. Natural forces don't create messages. Well, if that's the case, then where does this message come from? DNA, which is like take out the garbage mom. It's just a lot longer. In fact, your DNA has three billion letters in it all in the right order. Well, if take out the garbage mom requires intelligence, don't you think three billion letters requires intelligence? You say, well, maybe the first amoeba didn't have three billion letters. How much DNA is in a one-celled amoeba? And before I tell you, let me point out that an amoeba, you could line up several hundred amoebas in an inch. So this is a microscopic one-celled creature. You know how much information is in a one-celled amoeba? About a thousand volumes of an encyclopedia worth of information. Now, to believe that that resulted by natural forces is like believing that the Library of Congress resulted from an explosion in a printing shop. You see, I don't have enough faith to believe that. The first life seems to require an intelligent cause. You say, well, how do you know there's that much information in there? Did some Christian tell you this? No, you know who told me this? Richard Dawkins, the great atheist, even he admits this. He admits there's that much information in an amoeba. How many people in here saw the movie Expelled? Did you see the movie Expelled? In the, the first cut of that movie, when they invited pastors and Christian leaders to it, the end of the movie, they interviewed Richard Dawkins. I don't know if you remember this, if you saw it, but Ben Stein was the moderator, and he's interviewing Richard Dawkins, and he says to him, Dr. Dawkins, how do you think life began? And initially, Dawkins said, well, I don't know. And, and Stein said, well, what do you think your best theory is, your best guess? And he said, well, I could suppose you could say that life was brought here by, does anyone remember? Aliens, that aliens brought life here. And in the first cut of the movie, at that point, Ben Stein said, I don't believe it. Dr. Dawkins believes in intelligent design. Why did he say that? Because an alien's an intelligent designer, right? He's an intelligent designer that brings life here. Now, here's the question. Why would Dawkins, by the way, that's an admission that there's no, at present, no natural explanation for life, right? Because you've got to get an intelligent alien, alien to bring life here. That's not a natural explanation. But secondly, why would Dawkins say it's okay to posit an alien bringing life here, but not God? Why do you think? Yeah, he's got, there you go. There's the problem. Go back to the elephant in the room. I'm speculating here, but I think this is the issue. God brings morality with him. The alien doesn't. Now, of course, just, just, this just puts the question off one more step. Who made the alien, right? Okay. Look, if natural forces can't create life here on Earth, why should we expect natural forces to create an alien somewhere else in the universe to bring life here? Okay? It's not the same as who made God. In fact, we can talk about that later. An alien's a created being. God isn't. Now, by the way, why is this not a God of the gaps argument? This is a critical distinction here. We need to be aware of this. When you say that take out the garbage mom or a thousand volumes of an encyclopedia points to an intelligent being, 
Why is it not a God of the gaps argument? What's a God of the gaps argument? A God of the gaps argument is when you say, well, I, do, I can't figure out what a natural cause is, so, uh, so I have a gap in my knowledge, so I'm going to plug God into that gap, say he did it. Later on, I'm going to look real stupid, though. Like we used to say that, you know, thunder was caused by the gods bowling or whatever, you know, whatever we said. And now we realize, no, there's other explanations, natural explanations. We plug God into the gap of our knowledge, and later on, we learn that wasn't the case. Why is this not doing that? When we say God must have done this or an intelligent being at least must have done this. Because we are not arguing from what we don't know. We are arguing from what we do know. In other words, when you see take out the garbage mom, it's not that you lack a natural explanation for take out the garbage mom. You do, but it's also that take out the garbage mom is positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent being, for mom. Similarly, when you see a thousand volumes of an encyclopedia in a microscopic amoeba, it's not just that you lack an actual explanation for that. It's that that's positive information or positive evidence for an intelligent being. So you're arguing for something, not just against something. In fact, let's go back to you for just a second. This is you in the beginning. In 11, we're all there at 11 weeks. Now question, is that animal, mineral, vegetable, or human? Looks human to me. I put this up at the University of Texas at Huntsville. No, it was, uh, it's not University of Texas. What is it? Sam Houston State in Huntsville. And uh, an atheist in the back of the room yelled out, that's a parasite. Parasite, really? I, uh, I said, why do you think it's a parasite? Well, it lives off its mother. It's taking nutrients from its mother. It's a parasite. And the gentleman who brought me down there, his 10-year-old son was sitting in the front row. His name was Brandon. I said, Brandon, would you stand up for a second? He stood up. He's 10 years old. And Tim, his father, was sitting right there. I said, is Brandon a parasite? And the girl in the back said, no. I said, Tim, do you need to feed him? Well, of course. Are you just saying because something takes nutrients from its parents, it's a parasite, and then you can kill it? Well, then you could kill anybody. Is this some kind of viability argument? Look, I know some teenagers that aren't viable. <laughs> but if you left them home, they'd die. It's ridiculous. It's arbitrary to say it's a parasite. I had a call on a radio show the other day. Same thing. It's a parasite. I said, if you leave an infant alone, it's going to die. It needs nutrients. It's not a parasite. It's a human being. In fact, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to when your mother and your father got together. Have you guys had this talk before? <laughs> I see some young people in here, so I'll try and be discreet. When your mother and your father got together, your father sent the entire population of the United States, 300 million soldiers, <laughs> toward your mother's egg. And then there was a race. And you won! <laughs> Don't let anyone ever tell you you're not special. You beat out 300 million others. You have blown away anything Michael Phelps has done. <laughs> now, seeing some of you limp in here earlier makes it hard for me to believe you were the fastest soldier in the gene pool, but you were. 
Now, your soldier was 20 to 30 times smaller than a grain of salt, yet it contained half of the genetic information that makes you you. And your mother's egg was about the size of a period at the end of a sentence in an average book, and it contained the other half of genetic information that makes you you. And when your soldier and your egg came together, a new 100% genetic human being was created. You know, you have not received any more genetic information from that point till right now. Your genetic information has just duplicated itself. It's, there's no new genetic information. In fact, there's only four things that separated you from adulthood. Time, air, water, and food. Those are the same four things that separate a two-year-old from adulthood. We don't kill the two-year-old. Why do we kill the unborn child in the womb? Does this have impl- implications on the abortion issue? Yeah, I think it does. You say, well, we couldn't legislate morality. No extra charge for this. Newsflash. All laws legislate morality. The only question is whose morality? Now, from that point till right now, an astonishing construction project began taking place. Cells began multiplying at a rate of 4,000 cells per second. Some cells became heart cells. Some cells became brain cells. Other cells became lung cells. In fact, brain cells began multiplying at a rate of 100,000 cells per second. For most of you, anyway. And uh, some cells went so far across you to become what they needed to become that it would be equivalent to you today walking across the United States alone. And that construction project continues to this day. You just made 4 million new red blood cells. You just made another 4 million new red blood cells. You just made another 4 million new red blood cells. Knock it off! I don't have enough faith to believe there's not intelligence behind this. You're amazing. In fact, there has to be intelligence behind life. There's just too much here going on. Now, how are you guys doing? Can we do another 15 minutes and then take a break? Are we good? 15 minutes and we're going to take a break. Let's do this last argument for the existence of God. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go across Europe with a friend of mine and a couple of my sons. His name is Bob Cornuke. He's the real Indiana Jones. And, uh, in fact, we led a Footsteps of Paul cruise last year. We're going to do it again this year. But we were going across Europe. We started in Britain. We wound up in Berlin. We just kind of did what the Allies did. We started in Britain. We went to Normandy. And then we went to several uh, Reformation places, like where Martin Luther was and all that. And then we also went to the Buchenwald concentration camp in Wiedmar, Germany. And in April of 1945, the Allies liberated the camp They went through the front gate, which is still there. They looked to the right. They saw the crematorium about 100 yards off in the distance. It's still there. When they got down to the crematorium, they looked into the courtyard attached to the crematorium, and this is what they saw. Brace yourself. Now, if there is no God, then this is just a matter of opinion. Now, we all intuitively understand this isn't just a matter of opinion. It just wasn't Hitler's opinion that this was a good thing or a bad thing or whatever. It really is wrong to do this. In fact, if there is no God, there's no way to figure out who's right and who's wrong. How do you know who's right? Is it Mother Teresa or Hitler? How would you know if there's no standard by which to judge? In fact, let me ask you a question this way. How do you know which map of Scotland is better? What would you need to see in order to know which map was better? You would need to see a real unchanging place called Scotland, right? If Scotland doesn't exist, those two maps are meaningless. 
But if Scotland does exist, we can see map A, while it's not perfect, is a better representation of the real Scotland than is map B. In other words, we measure the maps by the real thing. That's exactly what we do when we compare Mother Teresa and Hitler. Mother Teresa wasn't the standard. Hitler wasn't the standard. There's a standard beyond both of them by which we measure both of them. And we say Mother Teresa measured up to the standard better than did Hitler. In fact, if there is no God, then what the Nazis did was not really wrong. I was at Michigan State a few years back, and some atheists were sitting on this side of the room. And during the Q&A, we got talking about morality. And uh, I said to one of the atheists, I said, uh, well, you're an atheist. How do you discover what morality is? What's your standard of morality? And he said, whatever the majority decides is morally right. I said to him, are you telling me that if the majority decides in Nazi Germany to murder Jews, that murdering Jews is morally right? And he paused and he blushed and he said, yes. And his atheist buddy sitting right next to him looked at him and yelled, no! What else could he say? I mean, the kid knew in his heart the answer was no, but in order to be consistent with his atheism, he had to say yes. But of course, if atheism is true, there's no morality. Majority, minority, there is no morality. It's all opinion. Whoever has the most power gets to impose whatever they want on people. Now, if there is no God, then love is no better than rape, not in any objective way. Freedom's no better than slavery. The entire civil rights movement, the entire civil war fought over nothing. No, no, no objective difference between freedom and slavery, not in a moral sense. Tolerance is no better than intolerance. If there's one absolute for people who are liberals is tolerance. But there's no reason to be tolerant, not in any objective way, because there's no God. By the way, are Christians called to be tolerant? No, we're called to be loving. Tolerance is too weak. Tolerance says hold your nose and put up with them. Love says reach out and help them. And in fact, if you tolerate things that are evil, you're unloving. By the way, tolerance also implies there's something wrong with the behavior. You notice that? Like Mother Teresa never had to ask for tolerance. She didn't have to walk around saying, would you tolerate me helping the poor? Right? You only have to ask for tolerance if you're implicitly doing something wrong. Also, religious crusades are not wrong. Atheists are always saying this. I had the opportunity to debate Christopher Hitchens a couple times. He died tragically about a little over a year ago. And both the debates you can see on our website for free, crossexamine.org. And Hitchens went on and on about all the evil religious people have done, to which I agreed. They have done evil things. But there's no evil unless there's good, and there's no good unless God exists. So, Christopher, what are you complaining about? There's nothing wrong with crusades. In other words, you can't complain about the problem of evil if there is no God. Why can't you complain about the problem of evil? Because if there's no God, there is no evil because there's no good. And the only way good can exist, or I should say the only way evil can exist, is if good exists. In fact, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And he thought that there was too much injustice or unjustice in the world, so there couldn't be a God. Then one day he had an epiphany. Ultimately, it led him to Christianity. Here's what he wrote about it in Mere Christianity. 
He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? There's no such thing as injustice unless there's justice. There's no such thing as being not right unless you know what is right. In fact, you could put it this way. The shadows prove the sunshine. In order to have shadows, you have to have sunshine. In order to have evil, you have to have good. Oh, you can have good without evil. You can have sunshine without shadows, but you can't have shadows without sunshine. You can't have evil without good. Evil only exists if good exists. Evil is a lack in a thing. It's not a thing in itself. In fact, Augustine many years ago struggled over this. He said, if God created all things and evil is a thing, therefore God created evil. Then he had an epiphany one day and realized that the second premise of that argument is false. Evil is not a thing. What is evil? Evil is a lack in a thing. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of the car, you've got a better car. If you take all the car out of the rust, you've got nothing. Evil is like rot in a tree. If you take all the rot out of the tree, you've got a better tree. If you take all the tree out of the rot, you've got nothing. A totally moth-eaten garment is a hanger. Okay? In other words, evil doesn't exist on itself. It only exists in something good. So, despite what people think, evil does not disprove God. Because there'd be no such thing as evil unless good existed. And there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. Evil may prove there's a devil out there, but it can't disprove God. So, let's sum up what we've covered here before we take this break. Just from these three arguments, we can draw some conclusions about the first cause. From the cosmological argument, we can see that this being is immaterial, timeless, and spaceless. Why? Because he created material time and space, so he must transcend material time and space. Secondly, we can see he's extremely powerful because he created out of nothing. You notice that everything we create, we create out of pre-existing material. God creates out of nothing. No space, no matter, no time. Try that one time. Also, from the teleological argument, we can see that God is extremely intelligent. We're here for a reason. In other words, we have purpose. He has purpose for us. From the moral argument, we can see he's absolutely morally perfect, and we all can, all can see also that he's personal. How can you see he's personal from the moral argument? Because you only have a moral obligation to persons. You don't have a moral obligation to impersonal forces. If you go try and dunk a basketball, you're not sinning against the law of gravity. You can only sin against persons. We also know he's personal, by the way, from the cosmological argument. You say, how so? Because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation or a state of existence, someone had to make a choice. And only persons make choices. In other words, impersonal forces don't make choices. Gravity doesn't go, look, if he drops that remote one more time, I'm not going to pull it to the ground, right? Gravity just does the same thing over and over again. It doesn't make choices. This is, by the way, why Stephen Hawking's explanation for how the universe got here is completely nonsense. What does he say in his book, The Grand Design? On page 180, he says, because, and I'm not making this up. You can check it out for yourself. Quote, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. What? First of all, Gravity doesn't really do anything. Gravity just describes what happens under a given set of conditions. And gravity doesn't exist unless space, matter, and time exists. That's the very thing you're trying to create. And gravity can't choose to do anything. You need a person to do that. Now, notice we have an immaterial, timeless, spaceless, extremely powerful, extremely intelligent, purposeful, morally perfect, personal creator. 
This is the God of biblical Christianity identified without reference to the Bible. You notice we have not quoted the Bible yet here. We're simply just saying that all of these arguments are consistent with the Bible and we have the God of the Bible without quoting the Bible. Now, does this mean that Christianity is true at this point? No. Why? Well, we don't know about Jesus at this point. We just know it looks like there's a theistic God, but there are other theisms out there, aren't there? There's Judaism, there's Islam, maybe some other minor theisms. Maybe they're true. Well, how could we know which one is true? If God really wanted to tell us which one is true, what could he do? He could do something only he could do, and that would be a miracle. And that's point three. And that's what we're going to cover after the break. We're going to do miracles after. Actually, I'm not going to do miracles. Todd's actually going to do a miracle. So you you want to come back after the break because Todd told me he would do a miracle after the break, and then we'll talk about him. All right. So right now it is, uh, what do I got? 2.30. Let's come back at 2.44. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2.44. That's 14.44 Navy time. So we're moving on. Come on in. Pastor Todd said he'll do a miracle, but looks like he ran out. Sorry. You'll have to wait till tomorrow. As we transition here to point three, our miracles possible, let me ask you guys a question. Before there was any mass communications, thank you, man. Before there was any mass communications, you know, 500 years or so ago, if one king wanted to communicate with another king, how would he do it over a long distance? He would send a message. And what would be on the message that would ensure that the message came from the first king? A seal. There'd be a seal on there, right? Now, that would authenticate the messages coming from the king. It seems to me that there would have to be a couple of characteristics about that seal to make it effective. Number one, it would have to be unique to the king. And number two, it would have to be difficult to forge. Why? Because if you could forge it, then you could send false messages for the king, right? Seems to me this is what miracles do. When you ask the question, why miracles, the miracle... Or let me ask the question this way. Why does God do miracles through people in the Bible? Why does he do them through people? And where does he do them? He does them around certain individuals who need a new sign so that people will listen to the prophet as speaking for God. Moses needs to convince somebody he speaks for God. Then God does miracles through him. Jesus needs to tell people he's the Messiah. God does miracles through him. Okay? That's the reason for miracles in the Bible. Now, how many miracles are there in the Bible, approximately? Does anyone know? Approximately. Ballpark. A billion. No. About 250. Depending upon how you count them, some of them are bunched up, that kind of thing. But let's just take that from Moses to... Jesus. That's about a 1,500-year period. Okay? So, if you get a miracle, if you get 250 miracles spread over a 1,500-year period, how often do you get a miracle? You get one miracle every math majors? Every six years, right? But is that the way they occur in the Bible? You get a miracle, and then six years later, another miracle, and then six years later, another... Now, how do they occur? They occur in bunches. They occur around people like Moses, Elijah, and Elijah, and Jesus, and the apostles. Why? Because these are people with new revelation that need new confirmation. That the miracle confirms the message, the sign confirms the sermon. The purpose of the miracle is to authenticate that this individual speaks for God. 
Moses says to God, why is Pharaoh going to believe me? Don't worry, Moses, you'll be able to do some miracles. I'll do them through you. And, and, and Pharaoh will finally relent. Okay? That's the purpose of miracles. Notice there are no miracles in the Bible just done for entertainment. In fact, there are no miracles in the Bible where the benefactor is the guy doing the miracle. In fact, Paul couldn't even heal some of his own friends. He couldn't heal himself. The miracle is done to confirm a message from God. By the way, do you notice that Jesus' miracles are in three basic categories? What are they? Jesus has power over nature, he has power over sickness, and he has power over death. Those are our three main problems here. We have natural disasters, we get sick, and we die. Jesus is saying, as Messiah, he's going to come back one day... And he is actually, I don't even have my mic on. (laughs) You guys probably wondering, why can't you hear me? (laughs) Jesus is going to come back one day, and he is going to have power over nature. There's not going to be any more natural disasters. He is going to have power over sickness. You're not going to get sick anymore, and no one's ever going to die. That's the signs of the Messiah. Power over nature, power over sickness, power over death. Now, a lot of people think miracles are impossible. For example, how can you believe in a resurrection? Or let me start out with Noah. How could you believe the crazy story of Noah? That doesn't seem to make any sense. How can you believe Noah's Ark? Does that seem like a credible miracle to you? It just seems kind of crazy. I actually believe it happened. In fact, back in 2006, I went on a Noah's Ark expedition with a friend of mine I mentioned earlier, the real Indiana Jones, Bob Cornuke. We went into Iran... Long story, don't have time to give you all the details. We had some intelligence that there could have been the remains of an old boat, maybe Noah's Ark, in the Elbers Mountains, which could have been considered the area known as Ararat. The Bible does not say that Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. It says the mountains of Ararat, which could be considered this area. So we got up to 13,000 feet in the area we thought it would be. We saw this object sticking out of the side of a mountain that looked like it could have been the side of a boat at one point. We got up to the object, and it was rock. So we took samples off of it. We brought it back to the United States, and five out of the nine samples tested as as petrified wood. But we can't prove it's Noah's Ark because it didn't say USS Noah on the side. There's no way to prove that. How would you know? But I believe it occurred. A lot of people think resurrections are impossible. I mean, how can you believe in a resurrection? Everyone you know who's dead is still dead, right? How can you believe in such a thing? And for some reason, the real problem miracle in the Bible is Jonah. Is that a whale of a tail or a tail of a whale? What is the deal with Jonah? How can you believe that? Now, what is the most, or I should say the greatest miracle in the Bible? Most people say the resurrection, right? It's a big miracle, but it's nothing compared to the greatest miracle. What is the greatest miracle in the Bible? Hmm? Yeah, the greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is believable. Now, the interesting thing is we have scientific evidence that the first verse is indeed true. So if that verse is true, every other of these verses is easy to believe. I mean, if God can create the universe out of nothing, he can do whatever he wants. It's not logically impossible inside the universe, right? If he can create the universe out of nothing, can he do the Noah miracle? Of course. If he can create the universe out of nothing, can he raise Jesus from the dead? Of course. If he can create the universe out of nothing, can he keep Jonah alive in a fish or kill him in a fish and resurrect him and vomit him out on land? Three days later, of course, that's easy for a God who can create the universe out of nothing. 
I have no problem believing in any of these miracles because the first verse appears to be true. Now, some of you may have thought I said something you might not agree with, and that is I said God can do whatever he wants. It's not logically impossible. You probably think, well, God can do anything, even logically impossible things. No, he can't. There are many things God can't do, like he can't create a square circle. Why? Because there's no such thing as a square circle. It doesn't exist. He can't create a married bachelor. Okay? He can't create a one-ended stick. He can't create an honest politician. <laughs> you know, some things that are just too hard for God. In fact, you can do some things God can't do. Like what? You can lie. You can change. Now, what's God going to change from? He's a perfect being. If he changes, he's going to change from perfection to imperfection. No, he can't go out of existence. If he were to change or go out of existence, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the standard, the, the, the standard by which everything else is measured. In fact, if he could do some of the things we could do, he would be weaker. So there are some abilities we have that God doesn't. But if he had them, then he wouldn't be God. Notice, by the way, if the New Testament documents are reliable, we haven't gotten there yet. But if they are, that Jesus relates two of the most controversial miracles in the Old Testament to his own life. Jonah and Noah. Do you think Jesus thought Jonah and Noah were historical or hysterical? He thought they were historical. That's why he related his own death, burial, and resurrection to Jonah. You notice that? He's telling the truth. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it very well. He said, if we admit God, must we admit miracles? Indeed, you have no security against it. That is the bargain. If God exists, miracles are possible. You say, well, why don't miracles happen more often? You know, by definition, miracles have to be rare. Why? Why do they have to be rare? If they happened all the time, we'd probably consider them some sort of natural phenomenon, right? They would have to be rare to get our attention. If resurrections happened all the time, what would be the big deal about Jesus' resurrection? It wouldn't. They have to be rare. And they are. That's why they get our attention when they happen. So don't blame a miracle because you don't see them all the time. People are going, oh, I've never seen one. Well, of course you haven't seen one. They happened all the time. You wouldn't be wowed by them, would you? They'd have no apologetic value. There's a lot more in the book on that, including the argument against David Hume, who tried to tell us that we ought not believe in miracles. Hume's argument fails. You can get the book to figure out why. But we need to move on to, is the New Testament true? So far, we've seen truth exists. It's self-defeating to say it doesn't. We've seen that God exists. We have three arguments and actually many others that I didn't have time to get into to show that God exists. Miracles are possible. Why? Because the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. Now we've got to look at, is the New Testament true? And for that, we need to answer two questions. Do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? And do the original New Testament documents tell the truth? The answer to question number one is yes. In fact, it's virtually indisputable. We know what the original New Testament documents said. In fact, there's a whole chapter in the book on this, chapter 9. How many people in here, by the way, have heard of Bart Ehrman? Has anyone heard of this guy? Oh, okay, sophisticated crowd, you have heard of him. You may have heard that Bart Ehrman tried to suggest in 2005 that the answer to question number one is no. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. He teaches at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He was an evangelical who became an agnostic, really an atheist. And he wrote a book in 2006 called Misquoting Jesus, or 2005 called Misquoting Jesus. And he tries to say that we don't know what, in many cases, what the original New Testament document said against virtually every other scholar. And in fact, you have one of the best scholars in the world on this right here in Dallas. His name is Daniel Wallace. 
teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay? He's debated Bart Ehrman. Anyway, the book ought not be, not be called Misquoting Jesus. It ought to be called Misquoting Ehrman. Why? I'll just give you two minutes on this. It's important. The very same year Bart Ehrman wrote Misquoting Jesus, which he wrote to a popular audience, he wrote another book with the greatest manuscript scholar of the last century. His name was Bruce Metzger. He taught at Princeton University. In fact, Metzger mentored Ehrman. And Ehrman dedicates Misquoting Jesus to Metzger. But they got together and updated an old work Metzger had written called The Text of the New Testament, an academic work. In misquoting Jesus, Ehrman tries to say that the answer to question number one is no. In the book he writes to the academic world with Bruce Metzger, he says the answer to question number one is yes. Same year, same data. You go, what? Is Ehrman misquoting himself? Why would he do this? I'm only speculating now. I don't know why, but I'm speculating. When you write a book to the general public, most of the general public doesn't know any better. You can get away with saying something that isn't quite true. And you can sell a lot of books. In fact, if you write a book that says the Bible might be false, that gets you a a spot on Colbert show. That gets you a spot on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. That gets you a New York Times favorable review. That gets you a review on um, NPR, right? You sell a lot of books that way. If you write a book that says, oh, the Bible's true, nobody pays any attention. But you can't get away with that to the academic world. They're going to call you on it. So why would Ehrman do this? Maybe to sell books. That's all I can think of. Last time I saw Bart Ehrman, he was driving a very expensive Mercedes. I'm just saying. Okay, I'm just saying. And every time he writes a book now, it goes right to the top of the charts. Why? Because he's the darling of the media for saying this. But he doesn't even agree with himself. In fact, in the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus, he admits that the answer to question number one is yes in an appendix he's interviewed in. He says, Metzger and I basically agree. He said, why would you even write this book then? We're going to spend our time on question number two. The more interesting question, why? Well, you can have an accurate copy, but you can have an accurate copy of a lie, right? That's not going to do you any good. How do we know these folks were telling the truth? Six lines of evidence. We're only going to cover two because we have limited time. I want to get to your questions, all right? I'm going to give you six lines of evidence, six lines of testimony that begin with the letter E. It'll help you remember this. They all begin with the letter E. Actually, there's a chapter in the book called The Top Ten Reasons We Know the New Testament Writers Told the Truth. These are just six of them. And as I say, we're only going to cover two. We have early testimony. We have eyewitness testimony. We have embarrassing testimony. We have excruciating testimony. We have expected testimony. We also have extra-biblical testimony. All right? Now, I'll just say a couple of words about uh, one and two. We're actually going to cover embarrassing and excruciating. Early testimony, most if not all the New Testament documents written by 70 AD, before 70 AD. So it's early testimony. Secondly, the New Testament documents are filled with confirmed eyewitness details. There's 84 of them in the book of Acts alone. There's 59 in the Gospel of John alone. All these are listed in chapter 10 of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Confirmed by archaeology, other historical means, other historical writers. 
Let me cover now embarrassing testimony in a little bit of detail. And this is the principle that says that if there's something embarrassing to the author or authors, it's probably true. Why? Why would it be true? You're not going to make up details that make yourself look bad, right? In fact, let me, get, let me ask you this question. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? Can I see your hands, please? If you don't have your hands up, you're lying. Okay, you're trying right now to make yourself look good. Okay, how many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look bad? You don't lie to make yourself look bad, at least not very often, right? You might lie to make yourself look good. Well, it turns out the New Testament writers have put so many details. By the way, it's true of the Old Testament too, but we're concentrating on the New Testament right now. The New Testament writers put a lot of details in there that they wouldn't have made up. They'd be too embarrassing in a made-up story. They're telling the truth. In fact, we call this, for that reason, we call this the duh factor. They would not have done this. Let me give you some examples. For example, the New Testament writers depict themselves as dim-witted. They fail to understand what Jesus is saying several times. We didn't know what he was talking about. We didn't know what he meant. Why would they do this? Also, they are uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus, not once, but twice. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to be crucified. Stay up with me and pray. This is my greatest hour of need. Don't worry, Lord, we'll do it. What they wind up doing. Not once, but twice. They make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. Who buries Jesus? Yes, and who is Joseph of Arimathea? Yes, a member of the Sanhedrin. What did the Sanhedrin do? Yeah, they sentenced Jesus to die. Now, why would they make Joseph look like a good guy while they ran away and hid for fear of the Jews? And why would they put Jesus in a Jewish tomb? What could the Jews have done if Jesus was in the Jewish tomb and he hadn't risen from the dead, but the Christians started claiming he had risen from the dead? What could the Jews have done? They could have taken the body out and said, stop all this nonsense, talk about the resurrection. He's dead. He's in our own tomb. If he wasn't in their tomb, the Jews would have said, your whole story is false. He never was in our tomb. You're telling lies. But the Jews didn't say that. What did they say? They said the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. Now, that's a bad explanation for at least two reasons. Reason number one, if you're a Roman guard on duty and you fall asleep on watch, what happens to you? You're toast. Reason number two, if you're a Roman guard on duty and you fall asleep on watch, how do you know what happened? What happened? Well, we were asleep. And while we were sleeping, we noticed that the disciples came. You noticed. You were asleep and you noticed. How would you know anything if you're asleep? They were just taking a bribe here. To say that. Also, you might ask the question, well, how do we even know that that was the story the Jews had? The disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. We know Matthew tells us to us. How do you know Matthew's telling the truth? By the way, Matthew is the gospel to who? To, to, To whom? The Jews. You know, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. Do you know, in Matthew, Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus does what Israel doesn't do. Matthew's trying to convince the Jews that the Messiah has come. Do you think he's going to put a story in there that the Jews could have easily refuted by saying, hey, here's your story about the empty tomb. If that wasn't their story, what what did the Jews have said? That's not our story, man. You're telling lies. Also, we know for the first 150 years of the church, there's an argument between the Christians and the Jews. Christians say Jesus rose from the dead. 
The disciples, or the Jews say the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. Well, that little explanation the Jews give implies what? That the tomb was empty. You don't need to come up with an empty tomb story if he's still in there, do you? They're admitting the tomb was empty by saying that. Also, notice they are rebuked. Peter is called Satan by Jesus. You think they made that up? You think Mark, who wrote wrote this down, said, hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a really interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. What do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. (laughs) What's he calling me Satan for? I'm the leader here. Also notice, Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about a theological issue. He says, I told Peter to his face that he was wrong for trying to get the New Testament believers to obey the Old Testament law. Now, why would they do this in the Bible now? This is in Galatians chapter 2. Why would these two leaders be arguing over theology if they're just making all this up? They wouldn't. They're just telling the truth. Paul had to dope slap Peter. You dope? What are you doing? They're not supposed to be obeying these Old Testament laws. Christ has fulfilled all that. Also, notice they are cowards. Peter denies Christ three times after saying, I'll never deny you, Lord. Now think about this for a second. Peter, their leader, is called Satan by Jesus. He says he'll never deny Christ, and then he does three times, and then later on Paul has to correct him on theology. Think they're making this up? Also, the disciples then run away. This is a Monty Python movie. Run away! They all run away. (laughs) And who are the brave ones? The women. The women are the brave ones. That's right, ladies. You can give yourselves a hand. That's right. We didn't run away like you sissy pants men did. Now, who wrote this down? Men. Now, what man is going to say that he was hiding? For fear of the Jews, why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb. Would any man in here make that up? Would that be your story? Now, if I was making this up, I'd write something down like, let's see, uh, we marched right down there and overpowered that elite Roman guard. Yeah, that sounds good. And then we saw Jesus, who congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. never say you were Mr. Sissy Pants and ran away while the women were the brave ones. And oh, oh, by the way, why would you never say the women were the brave ones or the first witnesses anyway in that culture? Yeah, their testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament resurrection story, you only have the men be the first witnesses. But all four gospels say the women were, which is telling us what? They were. They're not making it up. It was embarrassing to them in that culture, but they just said that's what happened. I had one lady come up to me once. She said, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? She said, because he wanted to get the story out. (laughs) I said, you know, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Because ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? Imagine Peter coming home that resurrection Sunday, that very first Sunday. His wife sees him and says, hey, honey, anything, anything happened at work today? Nah, same old, same old. 
What do you mean? I heard Jesus has risen from the dead just like he predicted. Is it true? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. You got anything to eat around here? See, men don't say much. Also, notice that they are doubters. Despite being taught several times that Jesus would rise from the dead, the disciples are doubtful when they hear of his resurrection. Not only are they doubtful when they hear of his resurrection, check this out. They are even doubtful after they see him risen. This is Matthew 28, 17. What happens in Matthew 28, 19? Does anyone know? Huh? We have right there, the Great Commission and the Ascension. The Great Commission. Remember, Jesus is standing there giving them the Great Commission. He says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers. That's why this church is doing it right. Make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and then he ascends to heaven. And as he's given this, some are standing there going, you see that guy over there? Yeah. That guy over there is Jesus. Oh, come on, it can't be Jesus. He was just killed the other day. I'm telling you, it's Jesus. It can't be. He was killed. I saw the blood and water came out of the side after the spear went in. I'm telling you, it's Je- it can't be Jesus. I'm telling you, it is. He was dead. It's Jesus. How do you know it's Jesus? Women told me. They're not making this up. Also, there's even potentially embarrassing details in here about Jesus, believe it or not. That if they were making this up, they wouldn't have said. For example, he's considered out of his mind by his own family who come to seize him and take him home. In Mark chapter 3, they think he's nuts. This is his own family. How many times have you heard the intelligentsia say, well, you know, the gospel writers embellished Jesus and made him out to be God. Oh, really? Then why are they putting stuff in there like that? Also, notice he's deserted by many of his followers. In John chapter 6, he says, look, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And right there in the text, it says, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. We can't follow this guy anymore. Hey, if I was there, I'd say the same thing. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. What are you, a cannibal? I'm not following you either. And who would have made that up? Eat flesh, drink blood. That's not a made-up doctrine. He's not believed in by his own brothers. In John chapter 7, his own brothers don't believe in him. That's very, very embarrassing. We learn later, however, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, is martyred by the Sanhedrin in the very city of Jerusalem. He's thrown off the temple mount. When, they, when he hits the ground, they find him still alive, so they bludgeon him to death. How do we know this? No New Testament document tells us this. Who tells us this? Josephus and Hegesippus. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived from 37 AD to 100 AD and was in Jerusalem at the time, tells us that James is murdered, martyred. Now, we learn here in... John 7, that when Jesus was on the earth before the resurrection, he didn't believe his own brother was God. But then, 30 years after this, he dies as a martyr. What, what changed his mind? There's a creed, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. What's a creed? Something that was orally remembered before it was written down. And this creed goes all the way back to the resurrection itself. Even atheist scholars admit it's pre-40 AD. You can read it in your New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. In that creed, among other witnesses of the resurrection, was James. So James sees Jesus risen from the dead, and suddenly he believes. But when Jesus was on the earth prior to the resurrection, he didn't think his brother was God. How many people in here have a brother? How many people here have a brother who thinks he's God? Yeah, you don't, you don't think so either, right? 
James didn't until the resurrection occurred. He's thought to be a deceiver. He turns off Jewish believers to the point that they want to stone him. In John chapter 8, he's talking to Jews who believed him. He gets to the point in the conversation where he says, look, if you believe in Abraham, you ought to believe in me because I knew Abraham. And they said, wait, you're not even 50 years old. How did you know Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was born, I am. Immediately, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Who is he claiming to be? He's claiming to be Yahweh. What's that a quote from? Yeah, that's a quote from Exodus 3.14, the burning bush. You remember when God appeared to Charlton Heston? <laughs> Moses says to God, who should I tell the Israelites you are? And God says, tell them I am sends you. What does I am mean? I am means the self-existent eternal one, the unmoved mover, the first cause, the sustaining cause of the universe. He's claiming to be Yahweh. That's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was claiming. It amazes me today. There are people out there who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, like Jehovah's Witnesses. When they come to my door, I go, come on in. Have a seat. You want something to drink? They just came the other day, as a matter of about a week ago. Actually, I, I was just about to leave, so I'm standing out on my step talking to them, and I say, look, before we get to the watchtower, can, can I just ask you one question? Yeah, sure. If Jesus never claimed to be God, then why did they kill him? For saying, love your neighbor? Did you hear what Jesus just said? Yeah, he said, love your neighbor. <laughs> we can't tolerate that. You must die. No, you don't get killed for saying, love your neighbor. You get killed for claiming to be God. Why? Because in a Jewish context, that's blasphemy. In a Roman context, that's sedition. In fact, early on in the Roman Empire, right after Christianity began, most of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire considered the, Jew, or considered the Christians as atheists. Why? Because they wouldn't worship the Roman Godhead. And they, they knew they weren't Jews. So they thought they were atheists. So that's why Jesus was killed. He was killed because he claimed to be God. Otherwise, there's no way to explain why he was killed. Certainly, he wouldn't get killed for skipping around saying, love your neighbor. You know, that's not going to get you killed. But claiming to be God will. Also, he's called a madman. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. Hey, that's real flattering, isn't it? He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. And oh, by the way, do you notice that there are two prostitutes in the bloodline of Jesus? Do you think Mark and uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke and Matthew got together and said, you know what, we need to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. Yeah, that reads a little better now, doesn't it? Do you notice even though, I can't remember which one does this, but one of the, uh, either Matthew or Luke, when they get to Bathsheba, they don't even mention her name. What does it say? It says Uriah's wife. Yet Bathsheba's in the bloodline of Jesus. You see, the Old Testament has embarrassing details in it too. Do you think any Egyptian historian would talk about the adultery of the Pharaoh? Do you think any Egyptian historian would talk about the Exodus? That some Hebrew prophet kicked Ra's butt? 
without any weapons? No, nobody's going to record that. But the Old Testament and the New Testament writers record all the embarrassing warts and faults of the supposed heroes. Also notice that he's crucified despite the fact that anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. If you're making up a Messiah to the Jews, you don't hang him on a tree. Why? Because according to Deuteronomy 21:23, that individual is under God's curse. Well, Jesus was under God's curse. What curse? Yeah, the curse of sin we put him under. But if you were making this up, you wouldn't say this. In fact, the Jews were looking for a political Messiah, not a sacrificial Messiah. That's why they missed him the first time. There's more on embarrassing testimony in the book, but I want to move on to excruciating testimony and get, then get to your questions. Excruciating testimony, and by the way, we get this word excruciating, it means out of the crucifixion. This is the argument that says many of these apostles died brutal deaths when they could have saved themselves from these deaths if they had just said Jesus had not risen from the dead. And they were in a position to know whether he had risen from the dead or not. This is actually a Caravaggio, famous painter who paints Peter being crucified upside down. Before we look at the martyrdoms, though, let's take a look at the disciples or the apostles' beliefs and practices before and after the resurrection. Before and after the resurrection. Now, keep in mind that the New Testament believers particularly the New Testament writers, all of them were Jews with the exception of Luke. Every other one was a Jew, okay? So they thought they had at least a 2,000-year-old relationship with the God of the universe. They thought they were God's chosen people. The question is, why would they change what they believe virtually overnight? Let's take a look at the contrast in beliefs. Before the resurrection, they believed in animal sacrifice. After, they believed Christ's sacrifice. For 2,000 or so years, they'd been sacrificing lambs and other animals, and suddenly they don't do that anymore. Why not? Because the true lamb has come, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. All these lambs we were sacrificing before were just symbols of the true lamb. Now that he's come, we don't need to do this anymore. Before, they believed in a binding law of Moses. Afterwards, no, Christ's life has fulfilled the binding law of Moses. Before, they believed in strict monotheism. Afterwards, they believed in a trinity. Three persons in one divine essence. I know the trinity is hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New. Before, they believed in the Sabbath. In fact, they thought they could be stoned for not obeying the Sabbath. After, they believed in Sunday worship. In fact, they said, let's, set, let's uh, meet together the day he rose, the first day of the week. Before, they believed in a conquering Messiah. Afterwards, they believed in a sacrificial Messiah. Before, they believed in circumcision. After, they believed in baptism and communion. Now, question. What would cause these pious Jews, these people, again, who thought they were God's chosen people, to abandon everything on the left and adopt everything on the right virtually overnight. The only thing I can think of is what psychologists call an impact event. What's an impact event? An impact event is something that's so dramatic that it can change your perspective 180 degrees. And some impact events are so dramatic that you will remember everything about the event till the day you die. You might not remember what you had for breakfast this morning, but you'll remember an impact event for 50 years if you're old enough. In fact, I'm going to ask the question of uh, some of you in here. Only some of you will be able to answer this question, but I'll ask it anyway. And uh, I've rarely asked this question in Dallas, but this is a good place to ask it. 
Where were you November 22nd, 1963? If you can remember where you were and what you were doing, raise your hand. Put your hand up, hold it up high. Everyone else, I want you to look around at the room here. Do you see these people? These people are very old. <laughs> November 22nd, 1963 is my earliest memory. I was two years old in two days. I'm 51 years old now. I know, I know. I look like I'm not a day over 50. I understand. Anyway, I was two years old in two days, and I was standing in the living room, and my mother was sitting on an ottoman in front of the TV, weeping uncontrollably. I said, Mommy, what's the matter? What's the matter? She said, they killed the president. They killed the president. I can still see her in my mind right now. When she was 26 years old. She's 75 now. But I can see her right now when she was 26. That's my earliest memory. I don't go back any further than that. By the way, was anybody there? Was anybody along the parade route that day? Nobody was in the grassy knoll and can tell us really what happened? Where were you when the second plane hit the tower? You know where you were and what you were doing, right? I was on the phone. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. There was, uh, I was talking to a pastor uh, north of Charlotte, and he wanted me to come to his church and speak on something, and we were just talking. And I, I had, had the TV on behind me. I had seen that something happened to the first tower, but it was behind me. And I said, you got the TV on? He goes, yeah. I go, something must have happened up there at the Trade Towers. It looks like a, maybe a Cessna went into the World Trade Towers or something. He goes, yeah. We're talking. And suddenly he screams into the phone. He goes, No! I turn around, I look at the TV, the second tower's on fire. He goes, a plane just went into the second tower. I said, you saw that? I go, what kind of plane was it? Was it a Cessna? What was it? He goes, no, 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 it wasn't a Cessna. He goes, it was, it was like a United plane. It was a jumbo plane. It was like a passenger jet. It went right in there. I said, you saw that? He goes, yeah. I said, look, I'll call you back. Hung up the phone. For some reason, I had CNN on that morning. <laughs> the Communist News Network. Anyway, I'm not making this up. The commentator on CNN said this. One has to think there's some sort of navigational error here. I said, navigational error? You doofus. This is the clearest day in the history of the Big Apple. What do you think? Stevie Wonder's flying the plane? I mean, come on. I got on the phone after that. I called the pastor back the next day. I said, we're going to come to your church and talk about Islam, because that's what this is related to. This is terrorism. Now, 9-11 was, what, 11 and a half years ago? And most of you in here can remember where you were and what you were doing that day when that news hit. But if I asked you where you were March 11th, 2013, which was like 20 days ago, there's nobody in here that could tell me. Why? Unless there was an impact event that day. There was no impact event that day. You're going, oh, let me look at my uh, iPhone. What was I doing that day? Do you think a resurrection would have been an impact event? Do you think if Jesus really rose from the dead, they would have remembered everything they were saying and everything they were doing, and they would remember everything Jesus was saying and everything Jesus was doing until the day they died? They'd have no trouble remembering that, would they? That's the only way I can figure out why they would have abandoned everything on the left for everything on the right virtually overnight. An impact event.
In fact, here's a question to ask. What did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What did they have to gain by saying that Jesus had risen from the dead? Remember, these were Jews. Well, first they got excommunicated from the synagogue. Then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. Right? Hey, we're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah, what's it going to get us? Well, at first it'll get us excommunicated. And then it'll get us beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up! Why haven't we thought of this earlier? What a great idea. No, they wouldn't have done that. In fact, they had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. I get this question a lot. Perhaps you do as well. Are there any non-Christian sources that talk about Jesus and the apostles? And there are. In fact, that's what extra-biblical testimony is, the E in this series of evidences here. I don't have time to get into it. But the bottom line is there are 10 ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus that briefly mention Jesus and the apostles. And when you compile their references, you get a story congruent with the New Testament. However... You know what the question presupposes or the assumption behind the question is this. You can't trust these people because they were the religious people that wrote this down, right? You need secular writers because they're unbiased. What a bunch of bunk. Think about this for a second. Who had everything to lose by writing this down? The people who wrote it down. Yet they wrote it down anyway. Why would they do that? Unless it was true. J. Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective. Uh, For the past 25 years or so, he's been a cold case homicide detective in Torrance, California. In fact, he was just on Dateline about three weeks ago because he just solved another whole cold case homicide from like 30 years ago. And uh, he was an atheist. He became a Christian. He just wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. He's going to come help teach our cross-examine instructor academy in August where we teach people how to present this information. And uh, in his new book, he says, in all of his years of doing this, there's really only three motivations for a conspiracy or a murder or a major crime. Here are the three motivations. Number one, there's some kind of financial gain to be had that might convince somebody to commit a crime. Secondly, there's some sort of relational connection, either sexual passion or otherwise. Or number three, power is to be gained by the crime. In other words, money, sex, power. Sound familiar? The New Testament writers didn't gain any of that. They never gained money from this. They certainly didn't get girlfriends because of it. And they got no power. In fact, power was imposed on them. So there's no known motivation for such a conspiracy to lie and make all this up. In fact, why would they die for a known lie? You say, wait, Frank, are you telling me that martyrdom proves Christianity? Because if that's the case, we've got a problem because, you know, Muslims have martyrs. Surah 4, verse 157, fourth chapter in the Quran says that Jesus never died. He was taken straight to heaven. A substitute was put in his place. Of course, the New Testament documents say he did die and rise from the dead. They both can't be true. Either the Bible is true on that point or the Quran is, but not both. Yet they both have martyrs. So is this just a wash then? You can't use martyrdom as an argument. Actually, you can. Why? 
because there are a number of differences between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. But let me just give you the one for our purposes here. The Muslim martyrs don't have any evidence they're going to get the 72 virgins or whatever if they fly a plane into a building. They just have faith. But the New Testament martyrs saw Jesus, touched Jesus, ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they went to their death saying so, and they could have avoided that. See, many people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went ahead with it anyway. You can't get better evidence than that unless you were there yourself. So, let me sum this up. We have early eyewitness, embarrassing, excruciating, expected, and extra-biblical testimony. Uh, The only one I haven't mentioned is expected. That deals with Old Testament prophecy. And some Christians say, you know, there's 300 references to Jesus in the Old Testament. I think you're overstating the case. If you just had one, it would be enough. And the one, if I only had one that I would cite, it would be Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, start in chapter, if you haven't read this yet, go to Isaiah 52, verse 13, and read to the end of chapter 53. And ask yourself as you're reading it, who is this about? It's an uncanny description of what Jesus did for us, written 700 years in advance. You say, how do we know it's written before Jesus? Because it's the greatest of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The great Isaiah scroll, 20 feet, 24 feet long, is right now in the Shrine of the Book Museum in Jerusalem. And in it contains all of, Matt, or all of Isaiah chapter 53. And we know that particular scroll dates from about 100 B.C. or earlier. So we know that scroll predates it. Of course, Isaiah is written much earlier. But that scroll shows it's prior to Jesus. It's an amazing uh, prophecy. So... The conclusion for this is the New Testament's historically reliable. It's fact, not fiction. If it says Jesus said it, then Jesus really said it. If it says Jesus did it, then Jesus really did it. So let's go over the whole argument again. Does truth exist? The answer is yes. Of course, it's self-defeating to say it doesn't. Does God exist? Yes. We've got three arguments and many others that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator out there. Are miracles possible? Yeah. The greatest miracles already occurred. We have scientific evidence has occurred. So the other miracles are at least believable at this point. The only question now is if any other miracles occurred to affirm apostles or prophets or Jesus. And that's what we just looked at in the New Testament. So it's true. The question is uh, now, so what? Because that's what we always ask. Oh, it's true. Okay, so what? Who cares? What does it matter? Why? Well, for that, we have to figure out why, why did Jesus come? He actually tells us why he came. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, give it, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, some of us are thinking, ransom? Ransom? I don't need somebody to pay God off to get me off the hook. Nobody needs to pay a ransom for me. I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything, at least not lately. I'm all right. When I compare myself to other people, we're, I'm in good shape. God's going to let me in. He grades on a curve, doesn't he? In fact... We think that. Why? Because we have a relative moral standard in our mind, from the moral giant Mother Teresa down to the moral midget Hitler. And then next to Hitler, we put criminals. We know they're not quite as bad as Hitler, but they're bad. Then next to criminals, we put the immoral people that we all know. You know, our immoral friends and relatives who aren't quite as good as we are because we're right here next to Mother Teresa. (laughs) And then we arbitrarily draw that line in the sand. And we say, these are the bad people. They're going to hell. We're the good people. We're going to heaven. 
That's what we think in America. You know, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell, if hell exists at all, right? Actually, the line does not run up and down. In fact, we ought not be comparing ourselves to one another. The line does not run up and down. The line actually runs across the top. And all of us have fallen short of that line. From Hitler to Mother Teresa and everyone in between it, what Christ has done is he's come and he's lived the perfect life in our place. He covers our sin. In fact, the beautiful thing about Christianity is that you're not just forgiven, but you're given Christ's righteousness. Your sins are forgiven and then his righteousness is given to you. Now, you were bought as a price or bought at a price what the scriptures say, and that price is beautifully illustrated by this short video by Third Day with Cuts from the Passion. Brace yourself. We need some sound on this, gentlemen. As long as I remember I've been walking through the wilderness Praying to the Father And waiting for my time I've come here with a mission And soon I'll give my life for this world I'm praying in the garden And I'm looking for a miracle I find the journey hard, but the reason I was born And can this cup be passed on Lord I pray your will be done in this world So I carry my cross And I carry the shame To the end of the road Through the struggle and pain And I'll do it for love Yes, I carry my cross And I carry the shame I feel like I'm alone here And I'm treated like a criminal The time has come for me now Even though I've done no wrong Father, please forgive them They know not what they've done The purpose of his life was to be punished in your place. His life was a gift to you. Have you received his gift? If not, why not? Why wouldn't you? It's free. And if you have, does anyone know it? Or are you an undercover Christian? If they were to drag you into a courtroom like they do now in Pakistan and try and convict you of being a Christian, would you be convicted or would you be acquitted? If you'd be acquitted, 
you may want to reconsider how you're living. The least we can do after what he's gone through for us is to let other people know, as imperfect as we are, we are his ambassadors and we stand with him and what he's told us to do. So what is the purpose of your life? Well, it's not a glorified Monopoly game. What is it? What is the real reason we're here? What is the purpose? The purpose of life is the same purpose for which Harvard University began in 1636. Harvard University, that liberal institution in Massachusetts. How can that be? Because John Harvard started Harvard University. He was a clergyman. In fact, most of our major universities early on were started by evangelical Christians because they believed education was important. Why? For this reason. The purpose of this institution is to let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. The purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. And when we say no, we don't mean intellectually like we talked about before. It's not just belief that. It's belief that and belief in. Because you can know that God exists and still not want him and still not trust in him. And by the way, everybody in here can know God and certainly make him known differently. That's why you need a body. You'll know people I'll never know. Maybe I know people you'll never know. You have gifts I'll never have. Maybe I have gifts you'll never have. That's why the whole body has to come together for this. Everybody has a purpose to know God and to make him known. And by the way, what's the purpose of the church? According to Ephesians chapter 4, to equip the saints to do ministry. Who are the saints? All of us. That's why Todd and the staff can't do all the ministry. He and the staff are supposed to equip us to do the ministry. We're all ministers. That's the point. Now, for more, don't forget about our website. By the way, if you want to join our email list, we're only, uh, we send out one email a month. There's a little card back there. And if you tear this off, you get to keep the uh, bookmark, by the way. Just give us your name and email address. We'll send you an email once a month. We don't give your email address to anybody else. You're not going to get 1,000 emails from other people now because you signed up for our email. We'll send you an article, a short article, that will help you know why Christianity is true and let you know when we're coming back to the area if you're interested. Don't forget the book, DVDs, curriculum, some of that's back there on the table. Uh, we, we have a blog. We have a brand new website, actually. We, of course, are on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, just like everybody. And in fact, we have actually taken the liberty to get into social media so dramatically that we've actually combined these three platforms under a new social media network called UTwitFace. Okay, so you may want to sign up for that too. Don't forget about the radio and also DirecTV Wednesdays. It's also on tonight at be 9 p.m. here tonight on DirecTV channel 378. So with that, we can go to questions. Uh, questions about anything at this point. And since they're recording this for, uh, I think, uh, audio, we've got to somehow have people come up to this mic, if you don't mind, or so we can pass the mic around. Otherwise, nobody will be heard. So uh, who wants to be the... Is this thing working right now? It is working. Does anyone want to be the... For the older folks, anyone want to be Phil Donahue for me? Or do we want to just put it up here? Thanks for the help, everyone. <laughs> Appreciate it. 
since no one likes to ask the first question, let's move right on to the second question. Second question, just come on up to the mic. No one will bite you. Come on. Give the man a hand. He's brave. Yes, sir. What's your name? Um, Scott Spaulding. Hey, Scott. So, um, first off, I have your book, your DVDs, and your curriculum. I think it's amazing material. Oh, thanks. So, thank you very much for compiling. You're feeding all that my other kids. Yes. <laughs> I've entered into several discussions with people who, um, based on the moral argument, bring up the discussions that many evil men um, like Hitler, um, Joseph Stalin, Joseph Kony mm-hmm. have all professed to be Christians at some point. Mm-hmm. And even Christopher Hitchens, um, during your discussions with him, mm-hmm. said that if God really does exist, mm-hmm. that he is evil. Can you describe sort of that? side of the moral argument yeah well i my first question when, when people say let me let me back up when people say something it's not your job to refute what they say it's their job to support what they say so if he if he says god is evil my question would be what do you mean by that right. what do you mean by evil because as soon as he tries to describe what evil is he's going to start using the language of good because evil doesn't exist on its own as we mentioned before right. god can't be evil because Evil wouldn't exist unless good existed. So whatever being out there is doing evil isn't God because you have to, there has to be a standard of good before you can even compare what evil is to it or before you can even know what evil is. So God must be the standard of good. In fact, when people claim that there is evil out there, they're not disproving God. What they might be proving is there's a devil. Mm-hmm. Now, evil and, and good are not polar opposites. Because evil only exists in good. In other words, it's a privation in good. There can't be someone that's 100% evil. Why? Because even Satan himself is metaphysically good. He has mind, emotion, and will. Those are good things, but he uses them for evil ends. In fact, if you think about this, that nobody ever does evil for evil's sake. In other words, when people do evil, they're trying to get something good out of it for themselves. Whether it's pleasure, whether it's money, whether it's power, we mentioned those three motives before, they're trying to get something good from it. The bigger question, as Robbie Zacharias Zacharias puts it, is not why doesn't God do away with evil, is why doesn't God do away with pleasure? Think about that for a second. If God did away with pleasure, we'd we'd have no motive to do evil. Right? Because what would we be trying to get by doing evil if we can't get pleasure or something good? Hmm. If God takes away pleasure, then this really becomes a bland world where we don't really have moral choices. Right? Hmm. So we have both pleasure, we have both good and evil, and this is a a world where that is allowed to develop character in us. Uh, So Hitchens, as you know, in fact, I tried to ask him in the debate, what is evil? And he makes a joke out of it. He says, religion, religion's evil. I'm asking him the question metaphysically. I'm not asking him the question, what do you think is evil? I'm trying to ask, what is evil ontologically, to use a philosophical term? What what is it? Well, it it doesn't exist on its own. It only exists in good. Mm -hmm. So going back to your point, though, about they call... You know, all these people, were they claimed they were Christians, okay? Well, you can claim anything you want. I certainly don't think that Hitler's maxim was love God and your neighbor, okay? That was not his maxim, so 
I don't, I don't think they were Christians, quite obviously. In fact, Stalin decidedly wasn't. Stalin went to seminary early on, rejected it, and on his own deathbed shook his fist at God one last time. He certainly wasn't a Christian. And, and another reason why I brought that up is, uh, I failed to mention this in the question, um, they usually bring up 2 Kings 2, mm-hmm. 23 through 24, in which Elisha is mocked by 42 children, I think. Mm-hmm. And God brings two bears in and kills mm-hmm. these 42 children. And his comparison was that here God is killing these 42 children. Mm-hmm. Look at Hitler. And I, I was saying, are you really saying that Hitler is better than God? Mm-hmm. Because God only killed 42 children? And then, well, so. first of all, you have to look at that text. It turns out not to be 42 children, but 42. It's like a, like a, a gang, mm-hmm. right? Uh, secondly, God is the giver of life. He can take life whenever he wants. We had this question last night at UT Dallas, by the way. All these Old Testament questions about the Canaanites and all that, you just have to ask one question, and this is the question. Is it, can God murder people? No, he can't murder people. Why? He's God. Mm -hmm. He can take life whenever he wants. We can murder people because we're not God. Murder is when an individual who doesn't have the authority, takes the life of an innocent human, pe- human person. God can take our lives anytime he wants. He's the creator of life. He can take it anytime he wants. He can take our lives whether we're two years old or 82 years old. That's up to him. And if he has reasons, moral reasons for doing so, that's up to him. He's God. And in fact, people don't really die. They just change location. Right? They go from this life to the next life. I mean, if God exists and if there's an afterlife, they go from this life to the next life. And God can decide to do that at any time. Mm-hmm. That's totally, he's totally up to him. By the way, in the book, The Case for Faith, that Lee Strobel wrote, um, he interviewed Norman Geisler, my co-author on this book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist on that very question. So get that book. He goes into a lot of detail on that very question about the Second Kings passage. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Anybody else? Oh, come on, there are more questions than that. Yes, ma'am. And by the way, you guys can, like, get up before she's done to save time. <laughs> yes, ma'am. What's your name? Deborah. Hey, Deborah. Um, my question is about the law of attraction. Can you speak to that? The law, law of, of attraction. attraction. What do you mean by the law of attraction? That it's kind of like the law of gravity. It's a law that if you, you attract what you think about. Oh, like Napoleon Hill kind of stuff? Yeah. And um, when I hear about the law of attraction, I think of God. Uh Uh-huh. But I'm presuming that not everybody who believes and benefits from the law of attraction is a Christian. Yeah, I don't know much about the law of attraction, so I'd probably be saying something I ought not say. But if you are what you think about, then most men would be women. (laughs) So I'm not sure that works. And most women would be chocolate. <laughs> right? Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Haley. Hey, Haley. Okay. I get really nervous. So. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Um, you stated that the origin of goodness was God, which mm-hmm. I believe with. Um, what do you say to people who say that the origin of goodness is maybe from social conditioning or pragmatism or some form of hedonism? Okay, excellent question. Um, it, it is, we're not talking about the, when they say that, there's a, a, a key philosophical distinction to make, and I'll, I'll use the words and then we'll describe what they are. 
One is called epistemology. That's how you know something. That's how you know things, epistemology. And the second is called ontology. That something exists. And what atheists will often say is, oh, I know morality because society taught it to me. I know morality because evolution taught it to me. I know what the right thing to do is because um, it's, we have to cooperate to get along and we couldn't have a society uh, if we didn't cooperate. These are the kind of things they say. But the argument that theists are making regarding the moral argument is not how you know something is wrong or right. It's not how you know it. It's why is it wrong or right? If there is no God, there's no way to say that something is objectively right or wrong because it's just your opinion against another human being's opinion. It has to be outside of us in an object somewhere. What's the object? God's nature. So it's not, an argu- it's not a question of epistemology, how you know it. It's a question of ontology, how does it exist? And there's no way to ground a moral value in just human beings. What human being, you'd have to ask? Hitler or Mother Teresa, right? You know, Hitler was trying to achieve something good in his mind. What was he trying to achieve? Yeah, the super race, the uber race. And in order to do that, let's take resources or let's get rid of the, the undesirable people who are taking too many resources away from the desirable people. This is exactly Darwin's survival of the fittest, right? Let's try and get the uber race going. So he had a goal in mind, an end in mind. Who's to say he's wrong if there's no authority beyond him? See, God's very nature is the authority. Let me give you one other illustration of this. Maybe it'll... It'll help a little bit. When I first uh, learned the times tables, I learned them from my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Fisher. He taught them to me, the times tables. That's how I came to know that, say, 4 times 4 equals 16. That's epistemology. But that 4 times 4 equals 16 existed prior to me or Mr. Fisher ever existed. It's just in the nature of God. The laws of mathematics, the laws of logic are in the nature of God. The same thing is true with morality. How I came to know morality can't explain necessarily why, say, murder's wrong. You have to have a grounding for that. And so when they say things like, you know, well, society taught it to me or we have to cooperate to get along, uh, that's not the point. The point isn't how you know it. The point is why does it exist? By the way, it is not true you have to cooperate to get along. In fact, most of the times when you don't cooperate, you can get what you want. Stalin. Did Stalin cooperate with many people? No, he murdered most of the people that got in his way, and he died on his deathbed, shaking his fist at God one last time. You don't need to cooperate. And why should you cooperate if God doesn't exist? Who said? Why should you cooperate if you can get what you want? Why? Go ahead, sir. Uh, My name is Bill. Yes. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, God is frequently described as a God of wrath. Mm -hmm. He uh, kills a lot of people, Mm -hmm. destroys all... But seven people or seven mm-hmm. men out of the human race at one time has the Canaanites or has the Israelites, you know, kill everybody they come to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. In the New Testament, God becomes a God of love. He mm-hmm. wants none to perish. Mm-hmm. Do you think God had a change of heart, change of mind, change of philosophy? Why is there such a difference? Okay, well, I think one reason that we perceive there's a difference is because the Old Testament covers how long? Covers, well, let's just say, if we go from Abraham to Jesus, say 2,000 years, right? If you go prior to Abraham, obviously much longer. How much longer? We don't know. Thousands of years. 
How long does the New Testament cover historically? Max 62 years, right? From Jesus' birth to 62 AD, max. Let's say 70, round it off to 70, right? And I submit to you that if the New Testament covered 2,000 years instead of 70, you'd see a lot more judgment because we'd have a lot more time to screw up. But actually, there is a lot of judgment in the New Testament. Uh, the concept of hell is, is amplified in the New Testament, and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem is predicted, and it is accomplished in 70 AD. Um, secondly, I think in the Old Testament, love is mentioned more than it is in the New Testament. Of course, it's a longer document. And the areas of judgment, the big ones are uh, Noah, and as you mentioned, and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Termites and those other folks in the Old Testament. Those areas are actually exceptions to the rule. And if there ever was a God, for God so loved the world, it's the book of Jonah. What is it? Go to Nineveh. What were they doing in Nineveh? Nineveh was Tilgath Pelazer, whatever his name was. He would take soldiers who he had captured, he would kill them and skin them and put their skins on the walls of Nineveh. And basically, God said, go to that culture and tell them to repent. So I don't, I, I think if you do a casual reading of the Bible, you get that impression. But if you do a serious reading of it, you realize that God is infinite love, but also infinite justice. In fact, some people ask, and I have a whole slide on here we can go through about the Canaanites. But one friend of mine said, when he gets the question asked, why did God kill the Canaanites? His answer is because they deserved it. A lot of people don't know what the Canaanites did. You know one of the things the Canaanites did? In fact, let me find the slide here. Because this is a, an, a question that, that happens quite a bit that is... Our question I get quite a bit, anyway. Stand by for vectors, Victor. Call for Clarence, Clarence. Roger, Roger. Do we have any airplane fans in here? I mean, please. Hang on, I just got to switch something here. I got to go over here. I got to go over here. Let's just take a minute to come up. Don't you love that swirling beach ball? If you're a Mac guy. Was it immoral for God to kill the Canaanites? Oh, stand by. First of all, when atheists bring this up, I always ask them, if there is no God, why is any Old Testament so, quote-unquote, atrocity wrong? Because they have no standard by which to judge the Old Testament wrong. Because if there is no God, there's no such thing as good, so there can be no such thing as evil. But it's a good question... For our worldview, if they say, well, let's assume God exists, it's a problem in your worldview. Okay, fair question. Next question is this. Is God arbitrary or does he give reasons for judging people in the Old Testament? Does he give reasons? Of course, he doesn't just wake up one day like a mafia boss and go, Canaanites, want him dead. In fact, he sends 400 years of warnings to the Canaanites to stop doing what they're doing. Why? What are they doing? This is Molech, the god Molech. Do you see this is a kind of a bull head and a kind of a human frame here? Well, they would heat this metal god up and put their children on the arms of this god 
And this, God would get so hot that when the children, as old as four years old, were placed on the arms, obviously the children would scream. And so the musicians would pound the drums louder so the parents couldn't hear their own kids screaming. Now, everywhere I go, I hear atheists saying, if God is a good God, why doesn't he stop evil in the world? And here's an instance where he steps in and does it, and the atheists are complaining. You notice that? In fact, why complain that God doesn't stop evil, but then he complains when he does, or then complain when he does? In fact, I was at Michigan State another time, and I could tell that some people in the audience were atheists, and one guy was sitting over there like this the whole time. And I could, I could tell he was an atheist, because he didn't even laugh at the Simpsons clip. <laughs> you know, he was just sitting there going, oh, I don't like this guy. So I knew it was going to be trouble as soon as the Q&A began. So as soon as the Q&A began, he shot his hand up. I said, yes, sir, question. He said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? I said, sir, that's an excellent question, because if he did... He might start with you <laughs> and me because we do evil every day, don't we? We, you know, we always think of someone, why'd you stop that guy over there? Why'd you stop her? We never think of ourselves. If God stopped all the evil in the world, he might stop, start with us. Why is there evil? Because there's free will. Why is there free will? Because that's the only way you can have love. But if he took away free will, this wouldn't be a moral universe anymore. So, is God committing murder by ending lives on earth? That's a question I asked earlier. No, it's not murder for God. In fact, God has the right to usher people into the next life, whether they are 2 years old or 82 years old. People never die. They just change location. And we, do, we have to remember something about the Old Testament, which you're on to something here, Bill. The Old Testament theocracy was unique and temporary. It was not the ideal for all time, but means to a promised new covenant. Those laws in the Old Testament were only for Israel. They don't apply to us today. In fact, Jesus even pointed this out. And by the way, this is Paul Copan's book. I don't know if you've seen this book. He's got a moral monster. He has some good insights in there. But he says, contrary to the common neo-atheist characters, the Old Testament laws weren't the permanent divine ideal for persons everywhere. God informed his people that a new enduring covenant would be necessary. By the Old Testament's own admission, the Mosaic law was inferior and and future-looking. This is why Jesus said about divorce, he said... I gave you, or Moses permitted you divorce because you're, uh, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So God even tempered his judgment in certain instances to deal with the hard hearts of human beings. And by the way, it wasn't uh, genocide either. Why? Because if you notice, God was concerned with sin, not ethnicity. In fact, as we read Old Testament prophets, they with God were angered about Israel's disobedience and they threatened divine judgment on Israel and Judah more than they did on pagan nations. If you look at Exodus 32 and Numbers 25, God orders the killing of Jews who disobeyed. This isn't just Canaanites. These are Jews. All right? Thanks. Thank you, sir. By the way, Copan has a lot in that book you may want to avail yourselves of. Anyone else? Anyone have any good jokes, perhaps? <laughs> yes, sir, what's your name? Alex. Alex. Alex is coming up. Hey, don't leave. i got an important video to show you. All right, if you have to leave, you have to leave. It's okay. We'll make funny as soon as you do. No, just kidding. 
I um I once sat down with a uh, with a guy that I worked with who was of the Jewish faith mm-hmm. and um and just before I sat down I just kind of prayed that I could uh, talk to him in a way that was um, just really with a humble heart and just kind of want to understand where he was and and so uh, in that I just asked him I, I let him talk and I asked one question it was I said um, why um, why did they make those sacrifices. Uh, you know, in the Torah, like, what, what was that about, the mm-hmm. animals and everything? He says, well, you know, for sin, you know. And so I said, well, why don't they do that anymore? Mm-hmm. Good question. And um, and he, he paused for a second, and um, he said, well, he says the temple was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a valid uh, deal. I, I didn't know what to why say. Why'd they build a new temple? <laughs> so uh, so, I, so I, I was just wondering, is that a valid... Yeah, it's a valid question. Why aren't they why aren't they still sacrificing if they're still waiting for the Messiah? If they're still waiting for the Lamb of God to come and hasn't come yet, why aren't they still doing that? Right. And 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 is um, you know, being able to uh point to um I guess a next um uh thought, I just couldn't put one together and so I, I left it at that, but um, if I had to revisit it, I would love to know how to uh, speak well, to Well, one question I would ask him would be, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? See what he says. Good question. And by the way, let me give you guys a few other questions that you can use. And this is for anything, not just for Christianity. I, I hinted at one of them before. When someone says something, it's not your job to refute them. It's their job to support what they say. The first question you should always ask somebody is, what do you mean by that? Okay. Somebody says, I can't, or somebody asks you a question like, uh, I, uh, I believe in evolution. Do you believe in evolution? Your question should be, what do you mean by evolution? Right? If you believe micro, I'm with you. Macro, no. Second question is, how do you come to that conclusion? Someone says, well, the Bible's been changed throughout the centuries, so, you know, I can't believe it's true. You say, how did you come to that conclusion? How many people are going to say, you know, I was just studying the Byzantine lines of manuscripts just the other day. <laughs> They're not going to say that. Why? Because they don't really know why they believe what they believe. Most people don't believe what they believe based on reason, as Pascal said, but based on what they find attractive. They've heard an attractive slogan they like. And so they take the slogan, they take another slogan, they take another slogan, they put all these slogans together and that's their worldview, never realizing the slogans aren't even true. And if they were, they'd be mutually contradictory. So when you ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? Most of the time, you're going to get the deer in the headlights look. Or they're going to give you an argument from authority. Well, everybody believes this. Does that mean it's true? So how'd you come to that conclusion? After that, you can ask the third question, which is your, a nice way of providing evidence back to somebody. And that is, have you ever considered, and then fill in the blank, have you ever considered the Bible has not been changed throughout the centuries because we have so many of these manuscripts, we can reconstruct it right from all the Greek manuscripts we have. Or have you ever considered that Microevolution is true, but macroevolution isn't, and here's why. That's your opportunity to provide evidence back. Have you ever, have you ever considered this book, Mere Christianity, or Case for Faith, or I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Eight, or whatever it is, right? So what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion, and have you ever considered? If you want to go deeper on those questions, get the book Tactics by Greg Kokel, K-O-U-K-L, Tactics, good book. And he helps teach our Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, too. If you're interested in this material, check out our website on that because we're doing it again this, uh, this uh, August in Charlotte, North Carolina. By the way, parents, you can use these questions on your kids. For example, they call you one night and say, Mom, Dad, I'm not going to make it home in time. 
your first question is, what do you mean by that? <laughs> why, why not at home in time? What do you mean, what do you mean by, you know, when are you going to get home? Next question, how did you come to that conclusion? Third question or statement, have you ever considered that if you don't make it home, you're going to be grounded for two weeks? I'll, I'll be right there! You know, so just use those questions for anything. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I don't know if I, I'll try to get a question out of this, but um, I often think of, you know, our current culture and how uh-huh. morality seems to be changing. Yet, as Christians, we have a morality that we hold to because of um, God's word. And I wondered, the arguments that I hear all the time, does it matter that, that we have these arguments about morality if they don't believe in God? Well, you can certainly call them and you can say, what is your standard by which you judge something right or wrong? Right. Uh, like if they say, well, I believe in equal rights, like the same-sex marriage issue is big, mm-hmm. as you know. What do you mean by equal rights? Should be your first question. Don't you realize that everybody already has equal rights, that every individual can marry a person of the opposite sex already, and that treats everybody equally? I mean, that's already the case. You, what you want is a right to marry somebody of the same sex. Well, I don't have that right either. And, but when I think about it, if they're not saved, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ and mm-hmm. they're not saved, does their behavior matter? And does the argument matter? Does it, does it matter in what sense? It matters to society, of course. Okay. Yes. Now, does but it, for their own salvation, it doesn't, well, their behavior won't make a difference. Well, if, if, if any of us are not covered in the blood of Christ, our behavior is just going to take us to judgment. Right. So... The key is to try and get them saved, but that doesn't mean that you can't also argue for moral legislation in Mm -hmm. the public square. Like on this issue of same-sex marriage, in fact, I wrote a little book on it. I know it's very politically incorrect to talk about, but I'm telling you, that issue will shut down this church one day. And if you don't think I'm exaggerating, you just need to go to Canada. Because you couldn't stand up here and say what I'm saying right now without being fined or imprisoned in Canada. Because this is known as hate speech. If you were to ever say, the Bible says that same-sex behavior, not attractions, there's a difference between attractions and actions. Mm -hmm. But same-sex actions are sinful. Pastor, let's go to jail. Sweden, same thing. And you know why this is happening? Because Christians are silent. That's why. Thank you. All right.